My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is an editor at the Republic Sentinel, plus a contributor to American Reformer and G3. Please welcome Ben Zeisloft. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Quote, it is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. It is to confess we are called, not merely to profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. This quote is often attributed to Martin Luther, but in fact it was written by the author Elizabeth Rundle Charles in her book The Chronicles of the Schoenberg Cota Family, and that a woman wrote it should be doubly convicting, because as men we know exactly what she means. This truth is written into our bones. We use it in phrases like, stand in the gap, The gap is the point that demands the soldier not flinch, and it is simultaneously the point where it would be easiest to. But we cannot. We must not. And yet, many Christian men do. Yes, including pastors. We fail to speak the truth about our beliefs, and yes, for many men to do so might cost them their jobs. That is certainly one thing not to be overlooked. But the harder reality is, if many Christian men were to speak the truth about their Christian beliefs, the true truth, They might lose friends, social status, close family members, and even their marriages. And so, guess what? That is where the enemy attacks. Because we're not in a physical war, and may God's mercy prevent that from ever occurring. Instead, as I heard someone say a while ago, we are in a spiritual war that is being conducted through language. The battleground is comprised of the words we use, their definitions, and the meaning behind their content. There are some words we just can't say. For example, for some a woman has become a quote birthing person. What is the definition of that word woman? Who knows? No one has ever known. And when you say a man cannot become a woman, nor can a woman become a man, not ever, you stand to get in serious trouble these days. And that's a mild example. But because Christian men have largely withheld their opinions on these matters for decades, whether because they were being seeker-sensitive, winsome, taking positive world for granted, or adopting the post-war consensus, We are now in a position where dialogue has been captured. The frog is boiling. That men didn't stand up when the stakes were low, maybe a few hurt feelings or some social awkwardness, means that now men need to stand up when the stakes are high, i.e. professional or reputational destruction, also known as canceling. But who's going to do it? Older men with families to feed are almost never the foot soldiers in any sort of war. They have too much to lose. People are counting on them. Or at least, that's part of the story. 
No civilized society has ever made women foot soldiers either. America is trying in our military, and I don't think that'll go well. And even in today's language war, the women I know on the front lines struggle with their roles. They're conflicted. They'd rather be home raising their kids, tending their gardens, baking bread, and loving their husbands than engaging with the battle on social media. They may feel called to fight, but the best ones would gladly put it down in a heartbeat. So, no older men, no women, who's left? The young men, as usual. They have been the chief draftees in all physical wars over the millennia of human history, and now they have to be the chief draftees in this spiritual war we are fighting as well. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Ben Zeisloft, and he's an editor at the online magazine The Republic Sentinel. Plus, I contributed to American Reformer, which was co-founded by last week's guest Nate Fisher, and G3. You might recognize Ben's name. He was a writer for The Daily Wire until suddenly he wasn't. We get into that story during the podcast, but in the meantime, we'll call it a difference of opinions. And so Ben, as the saying goes, took his talents to South Beach, in this case Twitter, or now X. And on that platform, he's one of the most outspoken and feisty accounts I follow, and that's saying something. Grounded firmly in Christ, he takes on topics like politics, sexual morality, abortion, and current events in a way I can't help but notice and admire, because he rightly recognizes the nature of the battle we're in and the role he has to play in it. He's already paid a price that few would pay, and earned his freedom, his status, and his voice, which is why I was both excited and honored for the opportunity to interview him. I think his story and testimony will inspire many of my listeners looking for a model to follow for how to be steady on our modern battlefield. In our conversation, Ben and I discussed his testimony, Christ on campus, Christian theonomy, the false sacrament of abortion, the virtue of suffering, the epidemic of passive Christian men, and his journey to the Republic Sentinel and the exciting future of that platform. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. It feels good to be doing interviews again. Thanks everyone for your patience as I took a much-needed vacation. My producer is a slave driver. The three-year anniversary of the show is coming up in just a couple weeks, and befitting the anniversary, I've got a great lineup of guests scheduled for this fall, and I just scheduled my first-ever three-time guest, and you get to guess who that is. You can help me celebrate both those milestones by helping this show grow. To do that, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify and a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. As a listener said, are you even a man if you don't listen to the Renaissance of Men podcast? And I'll let you answer that one yourself. In case you're interested, you can also catch these interviews on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash at men, where you can subscribe and hit the bell icon for notifications. So there are many ways to enjoy the show. Mark your calendars for Saturday, November 11th for the third edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series targeted specifically at young men. I'm getting ready to announce the lineup soon, and it's a group of guys you don't want to miss. Again, that's Saturday, November 11th, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Zoom for the third edition of the Renaissance of Men Digital Conference. And as always, the Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine coffee beans hand-roasted by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne in Springfield, Missouri. There are lots of people listening to this podcast right now, and I bet at least some of them are drinking coffee this very second. So I want you to look deep into your coffee cup right now and ask, was the coffee you're drinking roasted by a pastor? If the answer to that question is no, then I'd ask, why not? You want to take dominion over America, but you can't take dominion over your coffee cup? How about this? 
Meet me in the middle of this episode to discuss. Until then, go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee roasted by said pastor when you sign up for a new monthly subscription. Or, you know, you can wait for Doug Wilson, Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham, or James White to do it. But I wouldn't hold my breath. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast from the Republic Sentinel, American reformer and G3, a young man who I think all my listeners can learn a lot from, Ben Zeisloft. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. Man, I've, I've really enjoyed watching your journey, watching your Twitter over the past few months. It's been an exciting ride for you, and, and things seem to be heating up in, uh, in Christian Twitter, so it's a, good time, it's a good time to be tackling some of the subjects we're going to get into today. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to talk those things through. Excuse me. Yeah, let's start. Um, let's start with uh, with the, the headlines that have been, you know, sort of racing through Christian Twitter Twitter lately, which has been Christian nationalism. That seems to be the big topic that everyone's. Uh, that seems to be underlying a lot of the conflict that's going on between uh, men who used to consider themselves friends, brothers, allies. Now it seems like some pretty stark uh, divisions are are, are forming there. Um, so let's just start there and and let's see where things go. Yeah, for sure. So um, so let's let's begin with articulating for the listeners um, a, a ver- what Christian nationalism is in our definition. Now I know that there are lots of definitions going around. I'm working through the case for Christian nationalism by Stephen Wolf right now, and it's excellent. So let's let, let me let me kick the question to you. What does Christian nationalism nationalism look like in your definition? Yeah. So I'm I wouldn't. I don't know if I would call myself a Christian nationalist at right. least quite yet. Yeah, so I, I like to make the distinction between um, like theonomy and precept and, and Christian nationalism in the proper sense. So, you know, I've held to the theonomy and precept positions for a few years. Uh, for those mm-hmm. who don't know, theonomy is just the assumption that um, God's law should dictate, God's law in the Old Testament and, and the principles throughout Scripture should dictate how any given nation should govern. So not just national Israel, but the United States, Russia, New Zealand, Zambia, those laws should look to the law of the Lord to see what is just and what is right. What does God say is good? What does God say is bad? Even from a civic standpoint, uh, right? Because Christianity is properly understood. And this is where I think 20th century evangelicalism has departed as all of Christ for all of life. So Christianity is not merely for Sunday mornings and in your quiet time uh, before work and, and, you know, Wednesday night Bible study It's for all of life, including, you know, how you run an economy, how you run a government, how you, you know, uh, do media, which I'm sure we'll talk about later because we are, yeah. you know, a, a, a media outlet owned and operated by Christians, right? So with that in mind, um, governments should submit themselves to God's law is, is the position of theonomy. Um, and not, not to say that every single John Tittle of the Old Testament should be trans, translated right into the uh, U.S. Right. code. Uh, we don't need to do animal sacrifices, for example, but the, the general equity of that law should be followed. And it's, it's good. And I think it's, that's the ultimate question is, do we think the law of the Lord is good, right? You can read Psalm 119, one of the longest chapters in the entire Bible. And the entire Psalm is just, is just praising the Lord for the goodness of his law, for the wisdom of his instruction. So mm-hmm. that's, that's essentially the theonomy position. And then for, for presuppositionalism, uh, that's, that's more referring to an apologetic standpoint, saying that um, all men know that God exists, right? So the, the average um, American approach to, uh, apologetics is is called evidential. So we need to fundamentally prove that God exists to everybody, right? Not not just the, the Christian God, the triune God of the Bible, but the fact that there is a God at all needs to be proven, which I think is a category that the Bible rejects, right? Based on Romans 1, right. uh, Paul says that we are all under the condemnation of God. The wrath of God abides over us because, you know, not because we're ignorant about God, it, it's played from nature and the order in nature and, and the wisdom 
uh, baked into nature that there is indeed a God who is who is holy and powerful and just. Uh, so the presupposition says, let's not try to convince people that God exists. Let's try to show them the bankruptcy of their worldview and how only the God of the Bible uh, is is possible to to reconcile those differences. Right? The proof for God is the impossibility of the contrary. There's no way to explain the world we live in uh, apart from that triune God who we who we love and worship. Uh, so with those assumptions baked in, that's that's what we want to see carried out into the civic sphere and into our culture. Uh, so again, like you said, uh, CN is a big tent, right? So there's yeah. um, there's people coming at it from more Thomist um, perspective, like Stephen Wolf is, um, more two kingdom. Those are questions that I, I need to dig into, to be quite honest, right? Uh, I've been a Christian for four years, so um, I, I haven't I haven't read Case for Christian Nationalism. I certainly want to at some point. Um, and then there's also like the the charismatics and and you know, the seven mountain men, they can get lumped into Christian nationalism. So I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to just go and, and, and apply that label to myself wholesale because it, it, there's sometimes a rhetorical uh, divide uh, when you're trying to dialogue with opponent, opponents just by adopting a Big Ten label like that. Sort of like saying you're a Republican, right? So I, I don't start right. off conversations uh, in evangelism or apologetics saying, well, I, vote, I voted for Donald Trump in 2020, which I did. But, you know, there, that's usually an unnecessary barrier uh, to the conversation. I'd rather say, here's what I believe. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 the the stipulation that um, I like what Doug Wilson says that there's a was a globalism a nationalism right, and so what's going to be the principles of your you know you can, globalism we're seeing right what's the what's going to be the principles of that is going to be Christian is it going to be pagan right so like if we believe in nationalism then the nationalism needs to be subordinated under something better under Christianity than anything else that's what he means by Christian nationalism I think that's a really good I think that's a really good way of thinking about the problem of framing the problem and there are obviously like you said there are so many different approaches to it um, from a presuppositional versus a Thomist perspective and that's that's actually why I'm liking Stephen Wolf's book because it's so evidentiary laid out like step by careful step he's building a, a very a very strong case from that perspective that i think is it's quite difficult to argue it's quite difficult to argue with which is why people are slandering it of course right yeah yeah i have i haven't read any of stephen wolf's actual writings um beyond right. just his articles and his tweets and so forth but i did really appreciate his his recent article about immigration just talking about how it was i think it was with american reformer uh, it was just talking about immigration from a, the standpoint of christian hospitality Right. So just the idea that we wouldn't let anybody into our home without any, you know, qualifications or conditions. But in, and he extends it out to a nation. I think his argument was was well laid out and, and hard to refute, which, you know, you see some absurd uh, Stephen Wolf derangement syndrome out, out in the public square right now, uh, which is unfortunate. Right. It's yeah. it, <laughs> he's having a lot of fun with it, which is uh, which is cool to see. So just to back up for a second, you said you've only been a Christian for four years. I've only been a Christian for three years. Feels right. like the fastest ramp up ever. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you came to Christ, your testimony? I'd be happy to. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. Um, my parents are believers. Um, I have two younger siblings. So I grew up my entire life going to church, like I said, on, on Wednesdays, uh, Wednesday night youth group and, and Sunday morning church. That was my entire upbringing. I don't remember a single moment where I was not consistently in church, which is which is great on my parents' part. They were faithful, certainly in that. Um, but my my faith was very anemic, right? So I went to a mega church. Mm. We went to a mega church. Uh, so there were there are certainly some believers in that church, but I think the overall approach of, of the church does not lend itself to sanctification, to uh, deepening oneself in the doctrines of the faith. It's more like let's 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 reach the lowest common denominator and and keep it that way. So unless you really want to push. Uh, it's very hard to to grow in your Christian faith in an environment like that, right? Uh, even even just the the means of worship, um, 
you know, not having like a rock band, right? Uh, where where the songs are, there's no song sung basically that has not been written, um, you know, before the year 2000, right? Everything's new, everything's right. modern, everything has to be cutting edge. Uh, so there's a huge disconnect as well from the historic faith. Uh, so you're not going to hear about guys like Athanasius or Augustine or John Calvin or Martin Luther. You're going to be thrown into whatever is latest and greatest, so to speak. Um, so out of that, I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, graduated last year. Uh, but my freshman year, I got involved in a campus Bible study uh, that was led by some, uh, it, it was a broad organization, but the Bible study I was part of was led by some upperclassmen. And mm-hmm. I was just so impressed with their knowledge of the word. That was the first thing that struck me was, you know, if we had a question during the study, you know, these guys uh, knew exactly where to turn in the Bible. Let's go to, you know, Second Peter 1 to answer that question. And I didn't know that anybody, let alone somebody so young, you know, just a couple years older than me at that point, uh, could have such a commanding knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, so that got me into the Bible for the first time. They gave me an ESV study Bible and I was reading it and I came to faith. I, I would say it was converted around uh, the end of my freshman year after you know reading the book of James, uh, starting to read the book of John. So that's how I, how wow. I came to faith. And, and the Reformed faith as well, because those guys were Calvinists. They were thinking through a lot of the questions that you and I have probably thought through over the past couple of years. That's really interesting, actually, because I, I when I was in college, I, Christianity could not have been further from my thoughts. And this this was a number of years ago. And so I guess even, and, and so we were, Aaron Wren would have called the, that time uh, neutral world when, when the American public was generally neutral towards Christianity, definitely not in favor of it. But now we live in a negative world where the American public, particularly college campuses, are so biased against Christ and Christianity. What was that like being at, uh, being at UPenn doing a, a Bible study with Calvinist Reformed Christians? <laughs> yeah. Like just, a, this was a, a three, four years ago, you said? Yeah, that's right. And then through okay. the rest of my college experience as well. Wow. Um, yeah. So my dad went to UC Berkeley when he was uh, getting his oh. master's degree. So okay. he had pressed into me, you know, if they're my high school years, when you go to college, find the Christians, find the Christians. Um, wow. You know, uh, so so that's the first thing I did is I, is I found the Christians. And, you know, that's that's when my faith started to deepen. Uh, so that influence of my parents uh, leading into influence of uh, godly older peers uh, was what did it for me. But yeah, the University of Pennsylvania is very secular, as you say. Yeah. So it's it's very rare that you'll find a solid believer. There's probably like dozens. Um, I, I doubt there'd be over a hundred really sound believers who, you know, I'd, I want to link arms with uh, on on Penn's campus, unfortunately. Uh, so my wife is still a student at Penn. Um, so we do a lot of outreaches, evangelism, uh, and things of that nature on Penn's campus, trying to invite people to our church. Um, we go to a, a very old Presbyterian church um, in Center City, Philadelphia. So uh, 10th Presbyterian, so that's where uh, James Boyce, if you're familiar with him, uh, was a pastor for a long time, very influential Reformed church. Uh, but just talking to these students, it, it, they as soon as you mention the word Christ, you say Jesus, you say, oh, do you want to come, come to church? They freeze up instantly. That's that's the universal reaction. Like, oh, oh, you guys are a church group. And then they don't want to engage further. They, they'll try to uh, dip out as soon as possible, unfortunately. Hmm. So, well, so in this group, like you're, you're, you're doing evangelism and you're experiencing, you're experiencing your fellow students freezing or running away or whatever. Like I've watched, um, wretched. I've, I've watched him do some campus about yeah. uh, evangelism. Um, but he's obviously a much older man. He cuts a very different figure than fellow students on the campus. First of all, I'm also surprised there are like a hundred believers at UPenn. That's, <laughs> that's much higher than I would have expected. But, but talk a little bit about that because in some ways there's no, there, there's no faith pers- perspective. There's no, uh, perspective on geopolitics or anything more anathema, I chose that word specifically, to the collegiate mindset than Christianity 
what is it like carrying out Christian life in secular, captured, high-level elite institutions? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'll speak to the business school at Penn in particular because that's where I, that, that's where I went, uh, the Wharton School. Mm-hmm. So the attitude there is very much work hard, play hard. So you work as hard as you possibly can. You take rigorous classes, and then on the weekends you you know get drunk. You yeah. you know basically be debauched, right? Hook up with people, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, so even just yeah, stepping outside of that um, is will certainly set you apart. Like if you say I'm going to church on Sunday. They're going to be like, what do you mean? Aren't you going to be hungover, right? Um, <laughs> that's that's very much the the attitude is, is you know, people are, people get good grades, but it's because like they they buckle down for the week and then on the weekend they let loose. And um, that's unfortunately mm-hmm. the culture. Um, yeah, I mean, I can remember a handful of interactions where I've, you know, I used to wear a Cairo ring um, on, mm-hmm. my, on my right hand. Um, so I had a few people ask about that and say, well, oh, are you in a fraternity? Well, no, I'm a Christian. This is a sign that talks about Christ. It's, it's the first two letters of his, of his Greek name. Um, and then they'll be like, it's, it's the same reaction. It's freezing up. It's like, oh, that's cool. Um, they're, they're cer- it's certainly very foreign to encounter a Christianity as well. That's not just, well, I, this is my thing, right? This is, this is within my sweet little heart. Um, and I, mm. this is my religion. It's, it's my God rather than, uh, no, this is everybody's God and everybody's going to be accountable to him one day. So that's, that's the other component as well is the, the, mainstream evangelical Christianity versus the solid historical form of faith. Uh, I think the campus is, is very unfamiliar with the latter. They might, they might encounter more students of the former persuasion um, who are content to say like, well, I go to, you know, Christian union, which is the name of the, one of the bigger uh, Christian fellowships on campus. But when it comes to, yeah, Christianity dominates my entire life and it should dominate yours too. That's a very foreign perspective. Foreign in the sense that, I mean, it's one thing for people to run away right? To say like, oh yeah, that sounds cool, bro. I got to go. But I would, I, I, I would naturally expect that maybe this isn't the case. I would expect people to get quite hostile. Mm-hmm. Maybe you experienced some of that as well. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not as bad as you, you'd expect, right? And I think part of that is, um, you know, when we do evangelism and, and so forth, we tell the truth, but we're not belligerent, right? So sure. uh, we're not, we're not, there's, you know, we don't even street preach. We just, we just hand out tracks. We, we strike up conversations. We have a sign that says, you know, do you have questions about Jesus? Um, so that's part of it too. I think once, if you have, you know, like your foot in the door in that way, there's a level of trust that gets established. Uh, but yeah, there's still certainly opposition. I remember, um, I think it was earlier this year, I was talking to one girl who I think I talked to her for almost like 45 minutes. And at every point, every time I just named some Christian doctrine, she would just laugh. Like it was hilarious to her to think that somebody would say, oh, well, you know, the world was created in six days or Jesus rose from the dead or something in that something to that effect, right? Because uh, people are not used to, I guess, being evangelized. So if you're a Muslim or a mm. Buddhist or a Hindu, whatever your faith persuasion may be, you know, I think the average secular kid on Penn's campus would say, that's fine for you, but that's, you know, I'd just rather live my life. But once you try to persuade others of that view, that's like something they've never experienced before. Yeah, and there are there aren't many Buddhist evangelists or Hindu evangelists on on campuses. Right? I mean, that's those classes are taught, you know, in religious studies or whatever. But it's it's the Christians who are out there evangelizing, and that can yeah that that in a in a in a college environment today, I'm, I'm surprised that doesn't make more people more uncomfortable that they just laugh it off. I mean, in some in some sense that's that's uh, reassuring, right? Because it, at least because neutrality. I would say in some sense is better because at least you're not going up against a worldview that someone is, is willing to defend, to defend. They may be spiritually dead, but at least they're open to listening to you versus getting in a, getting in a fight, let's say. 
Right. There's a lot of that too. There's a lot of very intellectually curious people. So if you hand them a book or a tract, they'll definitely read it. Uh, so we passed out like a couple hundred books a few weeks ago, uh, just a short 80 page book by Kevin DeYoung and people seemed interested. It was, I think it was called something to the effect of, um, uh, don't follow your heart, something like that. So, um, mm. they were, they were just interested in, in that snappy title and they wanted to consider it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a mix, it's a mixed bag. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, the neutral mindset does produce at least some people who are willing to engage and willing to ask questions. So would you say that that early experience evangelizing on campus, would you say that was formative for you? Cause it's quite a thing to go from sort of an anemic, um, mega church kind of faith to straight into the reform faith on a college campus and then take yeah. it out into the streets. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's been extremely sanctifying. And, uh, so that summer after I was converted, I was listening to a lot of Jeff Durbin uh, as well. Yeah. And, and a lot of other reform guys, Steve Lawson, Arthur Sproul, John MacArthur, but Jeff Durbin would go to abortion clinics and, and they, obviously, um, he still does and, and his church still does. Um, but that, so I started doing that with some, some older friends on, on campus as well. So that especially even more so than being at, at Penn and doing evangelism there was extremely formative because if you're in a city like Philadelphia doing abortion clinic ministry, uh, you're going to be very much hated very quickly. Uh, so that forced me to be very confident in my beliefs, uh, even to be sanctified, right? Cause as soon as you have like that chink of your, in your armor of unholiness, like the devil will, will you know, pick at your mind and, and try to, um, try to work his way in even with, with respect to just guilt. Um, so, so things, yeah, things like that were, um, were very formative for me in, in terms of, you know, um, just repenting of sin as an early Christian, as well as developing, you know, a sense of God's providence and sovereignty, knowing, you know, I'm watching, you know, baby after baby get, get slaughtered. And I have no choice, but to trust in God through this, that he's going to save the babies that he will. And even, you know, if babies aren't saved from, from death and destruction, God is still good. Mm-hmm. Well, w- one of the things that we we chatted about through Twitter when we were scheduling this was was how outspoken you've been lately on on abortion in, in particular. So let's and of course, you know, I go to Apology, and that's a, that's the right. one of the most significant ministries of the church, and it's something that uh, I think there was a video of, of Pastor Jeff, and I think it was Orlando confronting a Satanist outside yeah. the abortion clinic, and yeah, I watched that. Yeah, it's really really intense stuff, but in many ways, it's kind of the chief sacrament of feminism. And uh, I was just listening to Even Exile by Rebecca Merkel, and she she talks a little bit abo- about abortion as well. So let's 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 dig into that because that seems to be a, a major, if not the major, political flashpoint in American politics right now. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, your assessment is right. I think it is the, the blood sacrament of the of the radical left and the feminists. Right. So you women are made to be the glory of man, and part of that entails you know bearing godly offspring. Right. Um, I think the Book of Malachi says. God desires godly offspring from marriages. Uh, so, so feminism has caused us to cast it off, even to the extent when when a baby is conceived, we we murder them in the womb, and that's that's considered permissible. It's considered even at, you know in more recent history a positive good in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, I think, increasingly, um, what, like when we go to the abortion mill, people don't say, well, you know, this it's just a clump of cells. They may say that sometimes as, as an excuse, but more and more often we're hearing, yeah, it's a baby. I don't care. I want to murder it and get on with my Oof. life. Right. Oof. Just the, the, those sorts that sort of just completely brazen attitude towards sin, just the hardness of heart. You know, I've, I've talked to older people who have done abortion clinic ministry and done outreaches for moms, worked at pro-life pregnancy centers for a long time. And they would say, you know, in the early 70s and the 80s, when when you talk to moms, they're almost universally crying and, and second guessing themselves. And I don't see that today. It's a lot of just, mm. you know, I want to do I'm autonomous. That's the other element of it. It's, it's feminism, but also autonomy. Right where you know my my body is mine, 
and I can do whatever I want with it. And it's not only um, the fact that there's another body inside the body, but that God made your body and you ought to glorify him with it. Like that perspective is completely rejected and completely foreign to our culture. Absolutely. In so many ways, like one of the, this shows up on, on one, one wing of the bird is feminism with women saying, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. But in, in the masculinity dialogue, you have the red pill guys, the pickup guys who are like, it's my right. body, I can do what I want with it. It's like, no, God made your body and he gets to tell you what to do with it. That's ah, a whole big thing. <laughs> right. No, that's a great point. It's, 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 we like to profet, I think sometimes you can fall into a ditch of, you know, just bashing women constantly. But you're right. There are immoral men out there who are taking advantage of the situation and, you know, who are sowing their wild oats and, and you know, taking advantage of women and, and being ungodly with their bodies um, in, instead of building and protecting and providing like men are called to do, you know, wasting their masculinity. And I, I did some of that as well, you know, late high school, early college, and Same. I had to repent of it. Like, that's not that's not yeah. Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, I was um, I was I had to explain the, the red pill to one of my Christian clients today because he had mm-hmm. heard the term but didn't know what it what it meant and having to lay out like okay how am I going to explain this in a Christian in a Christian context you know not not that it was any sort of burden it was actually a really interesting exercise to go through to have to explain this these secular concepts that explain so many things but how do I put it into a Christian framework and it really just comes back to God's design for men and women this is what he made men to do this is what he made men, women to do and the secularists discover this like hallelujah look what we discovered it's like it's been in the Bible the whole time guys <laughs> right yeah absolutely. Yeah, and God's design for us is good, right? He it goes yes. back to the issue of theonomy that we were talking about a few minutes ago, where you know God's law is good. God is a good God, and His law reflects His goodness. So even His design for men and women is is designed for a maximal flourishing, right? So even though the momentary pleasure may be in you know doing whatever you want sexually, whether that's you know man on woman or or man on man or woman on woman, as we're increasingly seeing, or or changing yeah. your gender, but really in the long term, you know, uh, marriage uh, and especially Christian marriage is what God has designed for our happiness and our good and in the maximum flourishing of all humankind in societies. Yeah. So, so let's, let's continue talking about abortion and, and sort of, I, I had a debate recently about, um, about women and voting. I, I debated with a, a feminist that be coming out probably in a month or so. And, and uh, she's a libertarian. And she was saying that um, she was saying, it's just not politically pragmatic to be talking about these things during an election year. It's so divisive. You know, we have, we have to compromise. And I, and I hear this debate a lot where it's like, well, Christians say abortion is murder. Like that's, that's what it is. And how can we compromise on the notion of murder? So let's talk about, let's talk about this, like, you know, political pragmatism, quote unquote, versus, uh, versus Christian orthodoxy. That seems to be the discussion on the American right right now. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great point. Um, yeah, so at the Republic Sentinel, we've we've done a lot of reporting on the pro life movement and some of their compromises, yeah. as you mentioned. Um, so right now, and this is something that most people don't know, most pro life organizations, establishment organizations, are the ones who are actively opposing uh, the abolition of abortion in any given state legislature. Yeah. Right. So, for example, last month we covered uh, the Ohio State Legislature. Uh, there was a bill proposed called the Abolition of Abortion in Ohio Act. All they would do was simply say that a, a preborn baby is also a human being. Therefore, the same laws for murder apply to them, right? So if I go and kill somebody yeah. in the state of Ohio, I'll be charged with first degree murder and I'll go to prison. And th- it's essentially saying no matter who does that to an unborn baby, a preborn baby, that same penalty will apply to them. So it's not it's not applying any greater or lesser protections uh, to any given class of people. It's just equal under the law, which is actually a principle of God's law is, um, you know, avoiding partiality, right? So yep. Deuteronomy 1 talks about 
don't give favoritism to the rich. Don't give favoritism to the poor. You know, everybody gets the same exact justice, right? Because when we stand before the throne of God, we're all going to have the same standard of justice before him too. Um, so what these, what groups like um, Ohio Right to Life and Center for Christian Virtue in the state of Ohio did was they worked behind the scenes and they basically scared state legislatures, Republican state, legislat state legislators uh, from away from sponsoring this bill, endorsing this bill in public. Uh, we actually got audio of a lawmaker um, admitting that he had, he had talked to one of these groups, a senior official, one of these groups who had told him don't file this bill until after November, because there, there's a, a ballot initiative coming up uh, with respect to abortion in Ohio in November. But as you're saying, you know, the, the debate on the American right becomes, well, if not now, then when? Because, you know, in, in the United States, every two years, there's a, there's a huge election, right? So it'll become, well, don't, don't do that until after 2024, because we have to elect the next yeah. president in Ohio as a swing state. Uh, how about 2026? So we can keep the Senate, we can keep the House. Uh, so it's a never it's a never ending cycle. And unfortunately, I think well-meaning Christians buy into it because, you know, they, they don't want to just lose all the seats that may have some degree of protection for the right to life. Uh, but that's how you get, you know, from 1973 to 2022, Roe v. Wade dominating and, you know, abortion essentially being completely permitted even to the level of the Supreme Court. Uh, so that's a serious question that American Christians need to consider is how we approach politics, not merely from a pragmatic standpoint, but also how do we maximally honor the Lord, right? Because we have to trust as well that, that he, he is the one who establishes justice, right? The Bible says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So if you're on the side of righteousness and justice, you're on the side of the immortal and omnipotent God who will fight on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Amen to that. And it almost feels like, well, when is a good time for us to take a stand? Like, when is that, you know, it's like, well, there's always going to be, there's always going to be an excuse. It's like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. When in fact, like, maybe today is the time to take the stand. And maybe you're not actually going to win that battle, but at least when you stand in judgment before a holy God, you'll have the, you'll have the, um, the clarity of conscience to know that I stood for what I believed in, even though it cost me something. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, William Wilberforce, excuse me, William Wilberforce, Wilberforce <laughs> when yeah. he was uh, seeking to abolish the slave trade in England uh, in the early 1800s, he proposed the exact same bill of abolition for the slave trade every single year for years and years and years until that bill started to shape the public perceptions surrounding the slave trade. And it, I believe it passed with a huge support of, of the British population just because his boldness and his willingness to declare the truth, as well as other pastors and so forth in, in Great Britain, uh, that's what shaped the public perspective on, on that issue and, and led to the end of the slave trade. Um, so I think we, we also miss, as, as American Christians, the, the fact that the law is a tutor, as Galatians says, right? The, the, the laws of the land affect how we view morality. So the more righteous laws we have, the more righteously uh, the, pub, the pop, population in general will see these issues, right? So if, um, if abortion is, is, is criminalized and, and the law says that preborn babies are human beings, that's going to affect the way the population sees this issue, right? So even at the abortion clinic, sometimes you'll hear the excuse like, well, you know, my baby's not a human being yet because you know, he doesn't have a heartbeat, right? Well, who taught you that the heartbeat is, is what determines humanity or not? That's a pro-life bill, right? Probably taught them that because that's a standard pro-life bill is let's, let's illegalize abortion after there's, there's a heartbeat. Uh, so that's, that's something we need to consider as well as how the law is a tutor uh, in our land. What I tell people is that it's a human life. It's not going to grow into a crocodile or a cactus. Right. It, grows in, it grows into a human. Like it's not, it's never anything but a human. It's never going to become anything but a human, right? And right. to arbitrarily assign some, some developmental marker as a mark of, of humanity 
is is ultimately flawed reasoning. And when I tell people that, they they whoa, they've never heard anybody say that before, right? Because they're used to people compromising on the notion of what it means to be human. Like, oh well, a heartbeat sounds reasonable. No, it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable at all. It never it, ne- it never was. Right, right. What did you what did you think about abortion before you were a Christian? I'm curious. I thought, I thought that abortion should be uh, legal up through the first trimester only. I was like, okay, there, like it seems like the second and third trimester, you know, you start to getting something that more closely resembles. If you would a- resembles a human. Now, if you would ask me what resembles means, I probably wouldn't have given you a really a good <laughs> definition beyond vis- visual appearance, right? Um, and I also felt that like, look, if you can't make up your mind what to do about this human life after three months, just mm-hmm. have it. Like you shouldn't have to think this through for nine months. Ah, it's like eight and a half months. Maybe I'm gonna, maybe I'll do that. Like I didn't think that that was appropriate at all. So three months was about as far as I thought anyone could, could reasonably go with it. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But like you said, that that's irrational because when does the human life begin? You know, the, right. it doesn't arbitrarily begin after three months. Right. So even Correct. even our savior, um, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary uh, as a zygote because he's a human being and he went through that developmental process that all human beings go through. So to say that you know a, a, a zygote, a one a one celled baby can be discarded is to say that Jesus was not valuable, was not human, even from mm. the womb of the Virgin Mary. So it's Christological heresy <laughs> in a sense wow. to say that abortion is not murder at, before a certain point in the pregnancy. Yeah. Just, just as a quick aside in response to that, I think it's so incredible how, to, like, you just kind of blew my mind with like Christ as a zygote. Like, it's just yeah, that hap- right. that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the it, it 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 lends this whole new character to reality to imagine how that was possible and required. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was listening to um Augustine's Confessions last night a little bit, mm. and he was he was meditating on, you know, God is omnipresent, but how can he be contained in anything? Right whether it's a zygote, whether it's, you know, us as, as Christians, right? Because we're, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, whether it's the, the physical temple that existed in Jerusalem, how can God be contained in anything? And right? doesn't he just exhaust everything at once? You know, all, all of creation, he cannot contain him. So how can it be said that he, he's contained in anything? It's, it's just a mystery that's far beyond our comprehension. Yeah. Hang on to St. Augustine for a second, because I want to, I want to, I want to talk about, um, about the the conflict between Catholics and Protestants that's now beginning on Twitter. I do want to get into that, but first I want to back <laughs> yeah. up to talk because it's it's driving me crazy. So <laughs> so first, I, I, but I want to get back to abortion criminalization and really um, and really highlight the point that it's not just about it's not just about like well we're gonna we're gonna ban abortion. It's that we're gonna punish the the mothers and the doctors, you know, and anyone who performs an abortion, even even if the father drives her to the office, yep. gonna subject them to crim- criminal penalties in the same way that you would you would subject um uh accessories to to a murder and the, yeah. those who committed a murder and and um and so that's what that's what the, the angle that jeff durbin and apologia go with that's true and that's true equal protection like if you really believe right. that 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 a, a, a baby in the womb is a human life and you take a human life why is that human life worth less than someone who's born or 18 years or older. And so that, that, that seems to be the thing. I like that position, frankly. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And it sounds really extreme if you, unless you actually start thinking through it, if you just have the mere emotional reaction, you know, it's like, it's like what the ERLC says, the Southern Baptist conventions, ethics and religious liberty uh, convention, right? They, they say, Oh, well, you know, you just, you just, you're anti-woman, you hate women, right? There's, there are actually 70 some pro-life groups who came out last year and signed a letter saying that we're never going to, 
uh, endorse a bill that, that cri- quote unquote criminalizes women, right? And I think the response to that is, well, we don't want, nobody wants to criminalize women per se. It's just, we want to criminalize people who murder. Um, so, so if we had our way, we would just say, I, I hope that no woman or no man or no abortion doctors ever prosecute under a law like that. I hope a law like that just wholly bans or, or dissuades people from doing abortion in the first place. That's actually the function of the law. Um, if laws are, are just and if they're enforced rightly, uh, the idea is to drive down rates of crime, right? Whether it's rape, whether it's murder, whether it's theft, if laws are actually just and if, if uh, elected officials, if, if people like that are actually enforcing the law, the idea is that there's no civil, you know, there, there's much less uh, civil justice that needs to be enforced, right? Mm-hmm. Because a few examples of people who do it, the, the law comes down on them so hard um, that they don't want, nobody else wants to do it, right? So that's the other uh, principle of God's law is proportionality, right? So uh, right now, I think we have the system where if you if you do something relatively minor, if you if you even, you know, like I hesitate to use this example, but, you know, the classic example that's given is, you know, if, if you smoke weed, you're thrown in prison for 10 years. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. if you murder somebody, you might be out in six months if you're African-American and, and your local DA wants to drive down the crime stats for, for African-Americans. Whereas right. I think the principle of God's law proportionality says, you know, if you commit a big crime, you you receive a big penalty, even up to the point of, of death. Um, but if you commit a small crime, if you if you rob a convenience store, you don't get thrown in prison. You have to make restitution, right? So maybe it's a fourfold or fivefold, uh, like God's law says. But something to that effect, rather than the system we have, where you know we we cracked on on minor crimes and we and we don't care nearly as we, as much as we should about major crimes. Right, like the taking of the human life. Yeah, we have no sense of proportionality anymore when you have people responsible for global economic collapses go free or get promotions or, or whatever. And, and when you have people running out of big box retailers, carrying armloads of, of goods, you know, no one, no one really cares. And yet, and that people freak out over, you know, people freak out over much seemingly much smaller things. We've lost, a, we've lost a sense of what really matters. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess, I guess then the question, I want to put a couple pieces together then. So you were talking about, your time on the college campuses, Christian evangelism on campus, and now we're talking about abortion criminalization. Was that an, was that an element of your evangelism on a college campus, or or did that show up like after? Speaking about abortion, yeah, or? like a, a anti-abortion um, advocacy evangelism. Oh, uh, not so much. I mean, sometimes we yeah. will get the response of, well, just because, like you said, it's such a hot button issue. What do you think about yeah. abortion? And then you have to say, well, I believe abortion is murder, and you know, um, murderers should be punished and, and babies should be protected. And, and sometimes that'll lend themselves to conversations like that. But uh, for the most part, we're just generally speaking about the gospel. We're trying to confront, you know, the predominant worldview of, of secularism, atheism, whatever the case may be. So usually it doesn't venture into the abortion uh, conversation as much more doing it on a college campus. Got it. Yeah. That was, that, that was uh, when my, my family uh, staged an intervention for me when they found out that I was Christian. Yeah. And so, um, and so it took about an hour for them to get around to the real question was like, well, what about that? It actually said, what about Texas? And I said, what about Texas? They said, Texas passed this anti-abortion law. I'm like, oh, abortion's murder. And then that was basically, <laughs> right. that was basically the end of that conversation. Um, and so you said the ER, you said the ERLC said, do you, you want to criminalize women? That was their language. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, th- they signed the letter. <laughs> Last year that all the big pro-life groups signed, so National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony List, a lot of their state branches, they essentially said, um, uh, affirming the second victim narrative, like you were saying earlier, where sure. both the baby and the woman are victims of abortion. So, you know, as they would say, um, 
which which doesn't make any sense. Um, but they they doubled down this past year at, at the SBC convention in Anaheim. Um, Pastor Brian oh. Gunther from Louisiana uh, actually confronted Brett, uh, Brent Leatherwood, the head of the URLC, just asking, um, well, if you support criminal penalties for babies who have been born, why don't you support them for, for babies who have not been born yet? And that's the language he used is we don't want, I think he said something like, um, we don't want our churches to be perceived as anti-woman by the world, right? So it's, it's almost this paranoia of, of, you know, despising God's law, shying away from the, the just, justice of God's law because of what Planned Parenthood might think or, or the world might think. Uh, so it's incredibly cowardly. And I think um, the people who, who affirm the second victim narrative actually show that they haven't spent much time on the ground uh, trying to reach abortion-minded women. Um, because again, like I said, these days they'll freely confess, yes, abortion is murder. And um, you know, I'm, I'm out here committing murder, killing my baby because I don't want it. That's the language that's used. It's, it's, it's very honest, right? So it, 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 it's helpful because you can call them immediately to repentance and say, well, you know, uh, murder is sin, but forgiveness for sin is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to kill your baby. And I also want you with Christ, right? So um, Brett Litherwood also said that uh, to say that um, women should ever be penalized for abortion is, is anti-gospel. That's the word he used, right? But you're actually denying women the grace of the gospel if you're saying that their sin is not sin. That's actually what Satan does is he says, you know, downplay your sin, diminish your sin. You don't need forgiveness for this sin. Just keep living in it. Um, so it's actually, it's damning souls to hell, this, the second victim narrative, because there's one in four women in this country have, have done, have committed abortion, uh, unfortunately. So we need to reach Whoa. a lot, millions upon millions of women with the gospel, um, who have killed their babies, who decades later are, are dealing with depression. And I know one woman who still has nightmares. She, she had an abortion in the eighties and she's still suffering through that to this day, having nightmares about the baby she killed. And, you know, she's a Christian, thank the Lord that, you know, and she's found still some measure of peace in the gospel, of course, uh, but that lingering effect of sin still persists. Um, so that second victim narrative is, is very, it's, it's damning for the very woman um, who proponents of it would say they're trying to protect. That's, um, yes, I'm, I'm aware, I'm aware that, that there is this idea that uh, the woman's potential victimhood ha has greater weight than the humanity of the child which I don't know how you even square that outside of such a deeply catechized feminism that lives inside yeah. so many people's hearts. I guess we don't want to seem like we're, we're anti-woman. Like, I guess I don't, I don't understand how you, how you get away within your own heart and your own conscience with, with essentially condoning sin. Like yeah. if, you, if you agree that it's a human life that's just been taken, that a woman's just done that, like, Oh, we don't, we don't want her to be penalized for that. Like, what do you mean? Like if, if she yeah. were to shoot someone, if she were to kill another human being in cold blood, right? You would, you would demand legal penalties for that. Why is it, why is, what makes the, what makes a baby different? Right, exactly. Yeah, there's also a pretty viral clip earlier this summer uh, from the Whatever podcast where mm. Lila Rose, who the head of live action and Kristen Hawkins, the head of uh, Students for Life, were talking to a pro-abortion guy um, on that podcast and they were debating about the issue. And the, um, I believe it, the way it went was Kristen Hawkins doubled down that second victim narrative saying, oh, a woman shouldn't be penalized uh, for, for abortions. And then the, the pro-abortion guy, the liberal guy says, well, what do you mean? You're here saying that abortion is murder and that and you're, so you're saying that murder shouldn't be punished. And it was a deeply inconsistent perspective to say you can't hold yeah. both. Either it's not a human being and they shouldn't be prosecuted, people who, who kill those non-human beings or they are human beings and they should be prosecuted with equal justice and equal protection under the law. And Lila Rose actually opposed um, Kristen Hawkins as well and said, well, I, I do hold a position that, you know, uh, women who do will willfully and maliciously commit an abortion should be prosecuted. Um, 
And I think anybody who's, again, on the ground on this issue and actually knows women who have had abortions and uh, things of that nature and are trying to reach them have no choice but to conclude something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's an uncomfortable but logical conclusion. Right. Like you can't, you can't, you can't avoid the conclusion, even if it doesn't make you feel good. Right. But, right. but you know, I, I sometimes observe that at least within myself, that when I encounter something in Christianity that doesn't make me feel good, I've probably encountered something really true that I need to reckon with. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. That happens all the time. That, even just reading the Bible. Like I don't, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not comfortable with this thing that happens, right. Whether it's the the genocide of the Canaanites or whatever. But again, it goes back to first principles. God is good and God is righteous and just. So even if I can't understand this right now, there's there's an explanation and it's consistent with God's character. Well, and this is where presuppositionalism is so powerful because if I have to start from the zero ground of proving that God exists, then once I prove he exists, then I have to prove that he's good, right? Which is very difficult to do from a, from a, from a neutral kind of perspective. But if you begin from a presuppositional perspective that the, the contrary, I, I forget what you said. I should have written it down. I'll go back and listen. But you said the contrary is illogical or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the ultimate proof for God is the impossibility of the contrary. I think it's Van Til who said it. that at first, Cornelius Van Til. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly that. So if, so if you begin from that perspective, that's a far more powerful place to be. And then you recognize God's goodness has manifested in the life of, of believers who you know repent and believe, and you see that you see that take shape in people's lives. I've certainly seen it take shape in my life. It's a much more powerful place to be. Versus, no, you have to prove to me that God exists first, which is a podcast that I had a couple of weeks ago, actually. Right, right. And even in Acts seventeen, um, Paul says to the to Athen- the Athenians on Mars Hill, you know, God is the one who gives you rains, who gives you good food to eat. Right. God has been showing His kindness to all nations since the beginning of creation, even after the fall. Right, God calls God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Right, so there's there's no person walking around this earth who has not experienced some degree of God's God's mercy and His goodness uh, in general toward humanity, humanity, His common grace. Right, the problem is if you don't know the true God, you have nobody to thank. That's that's why atheism is so shocking. Because who do you turn around and thank when when you enjoy a delicious steak? When you when you go to a party with your friends and family? Um, you know, there's nobody to turn around and think if it's just a a meaningless, arbitrary universe, then, you know, there's no difference between, between that experience fundamentally and, you know, uh, getting stabbed in the back alley, let's say. Who's to say that one of those is good and one of those is bad, right? It's, but the good is from the Lord. He's, he's the one who's blessing us. Um, you know, whether you come to faith in Christ or not, every single human being um, has some measure of his, of his kindness shown to them. Yeah, and, and that, posture, that posture of gratitude, even, even for suffering, like and that's that's the big thing is the the question of suffering, not even evil. We don't even have to take it to, to the question of evil. That's a whole other thing, but uh, but the question of suffering in our own lives mm-hmm. is is lent meaning by suffering being transformed into sanctification. Because otherwise, why do we suffer? Otherwise, why do we go on? Like I did a I did a podcast about you know sort of what I consider to be some logical proofs of hell, for mm-hmm. example. And so and so when you when you live in an atheist worldview. The big question, and I think even the the atheist Sartre or something like that, the existentialist said said the only real question about atheism is something like that is, is why why not suicide? Because right. if you're suffering right. and there's no afterlife penalty and there's no purpose to anything, why exist at all? Why not just end it? Which most people revolt in horror at. And it's like that's a sign that maybe there's more to the question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I was reading John Calvin um, the other night, his Institutes, and he, there's a whole chapter on on the soul and and what it means to be made in the image mm. of God. And it was, he was talking about how 
um, the conscience and in the sense of justice is a proof that we have a soul, right? Because every single yeah. human being knows that there's right or wrong, right? R.C. Sproul was famous for saying, if you, see, if you meet somebody who denies objective morality, steal their wallet and then see if they deny it or not, right? So, right. you know, maybe you can, in the abstract, you can, you can say, well, morality is uh, subjective, but as soon as, um, you know, injustice is committed against you, you're very quick to assert an objective standard of morality, uh, so I think you're right. Like every human being knows fundamentally that, you know, there is final justice, um, that they're going to meet their maker. There's something baked into our souls that says that. Yeah. I mean, the, the example, I used a similar example, maybe not with stealing a wallet, but you look at the image <laughs> in Tanman Square of Tank Man. Like, why does everyone like that photo? Because he's standing up against injustice, right? Your conscience says that man has courage that I wish I embodied. But in yeah. the, if there's no objective morality, then why do you care? Like, oh, that guy should just get run over or whatever, you know, like it shouldn't resonate at all. But that that singular image resonates with so many people around the world and has for so long is, is a sign that there's something deeper because conscience doesn't just tell us right from wrong in, in times that's convenient. Most yeah. times the conscience is the most in, gives us that information at the most inconvenient time. So there's nothing socially conditioned about it at all. It's actually very, it's very not socially conditioned. It's, I don't want to say it's anti-socially conditioned, it's pro-social, but in contrary ways. And but <laughs> when you start pushing on that with people, they get very uncomfortable. Right, right. Yeah. Something I've learned in my Christian life is that God does not let believers get away with sin. Right. He he digs yeah. into the conscience. It's like how the, the psalmist says that my bones waste away when I don't confess my sin. I think it's Psalm thirty-two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm -hmm. But like, there's a sense in which God really uses that like that conscience uh, for your own good, and even in the unbeliever, your conscience, their conscience is often your best friend as the evangelist when you're trying to reach them with the truth is because they know that they're guilty before God fundamentally. Even if they say they're a good person, you know, they'll, they'll freely confess, yeah, I've told many lies. I've, I've lusted after women in my heart. You know, and those are all things that fall, cause us to fall short of God's standard perfection. Um, yeah, and then going back to that, that example of Tiananmen Square, consistent atheism and Darwinism would say, well, that guy is just a, a bag of protoplasm. He's, he's an ugly bag of mostly water, as, as Dr. James White says, right? That's right. That's a, that's a great line. Um, and the tank is just, you know, it's, it's a hunk of iron and nickel and some other elements. So who's to say that, you know, the, the iron, the nickel and the other, other elements uh, running over the merely accidental organic matter is any good or bad. But every single person looks at that and says there's something admirable in that man, you know, standing against injustice. And, you know, so, so atheists, even, even with the atheists, they have to borrow from the Christian worldview. They have to borrow from, you know, the God who defines what virtue is and immorality is in order to make any sense of their world and to have any meaning. Yeah. None of them are ever actually willing to commit to pure materialism. None of them can ever, they can't ever actually get there. It's very rare. You find someone, you may even like in that, in that video with pastor Jeff and the, and the Satanists, like you're going to hell. Yep. You know, like you may find yeah. people that say things like that for show, you know, for rhetorical effect, but in reality, no one can actually land in the pure atheist worldview that maybe they can suppress the truth and unrighteousness to the to as far down as possible but ultimately we're still made in god's image and we still live in god's in god's world in the world that he made so we can't suppress it that far yeah that's right and you i, I if i remember correctly your journey to christianity involved a lot of spirituality a lot of uh, encounters with with spiritual beings even was there a yeah. point at which that you went from atheist or agnostic to yeah, I realized that the spiritual world exists, or did you always kind of know that there was something spiritual about the universe? I would say that, I, that I've that i had the gift of faith my whole life, mm -hmm. even if, but not necessarily faith in the right 
God. <laughs> right? sure. So, so faith yeah. in something, but there, I don't think that there was ever a point where I was really atheist. Um, I think, I think the most that I ever would have said was like all is all is one. So there is a spiritual dimension to reality that transcends the material, but ultimately at the highest level, all is one. And that's Dr. Peter Jones talks about all is one versus all is two, which is one mm-hmm. which is the whole Eastern mysticism perspective. And, and all is two is twoism, which is Christianity. And they're fundamentally opposed, which is, I, I love that distinction. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, um, I recently wrote an article at the Sentinel um, about Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president on the Republican yep. side. And he'll, he'll say things like, I believe in a singular God. And if, he's not being clear, but I think what he means is, is like yeah. that Brahmin concept, like everything is one. But the problem is like, we're one nation under God. So you can't really submit to yourself to a God that you're a part of, right? Which I think yep. is, is where that divide between, you know, the East and, and Christianity really comes into play is because, you know, if you're just part of the divine, like who's to say, you know, like you, you can submit to, you know, a greater part of yourself. It, it doesn't make any sense with um, the Western understanding of, of rights and of, of duty and, and so forth, where, like I said, you know, we're all going to stand before God who is not us, right? He is above us. He is holy. Um, he is eternal. We are unholy and temporal and, and weak and small, and he's mighty and large. And, and we're going to very much feel that difference on the last day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's actually um, the whole oneist, um, the whole oneist theology, it's actually very dangerous because oneism ultimately says there's no meaningful differences between things, right? So if there's no created order by a God who's totally outside of time, space, and reality, totally separate and sovereign, if all things are essentially God, then all things are essentially equal. And if you believe mm. God is good, then all things are essentially good, which has nothing to do with the world that we live in. And so what really started to crack things for me, this is, this is true, it was truly it as well, was, you know, discovering the reality of like child sex trafficking and Jeffrey Epstein and, and stuff like that yeah. going down those rabbit holes. And it's like, can you, like, I couldn't bring myself to say that's just it, any, any, the, any perceived negativity there, which is a light word for it is just perceived, right? Like huh. ultimately, ultimately it's ultimately God is good and, and all things are equal and there's nothing inherently evil about this. Like I couldn't bring myself to say to a little kid in that situation, like, yeah, this is just your karma. <laughs> like who does, how can you, you can't get there. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that, that was that, tr- that, qu- that single question troubled me so much through wandering through the world of new age and Eastern mysticism. I could never get anyone to answer it for me. And that's wow. what ultimately led, led me to Christ. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So, so if I approach like a Hindu and I say, you know, what do you make of the problem of evil? They would just say that's, that's an arbitrary difference or that's because of karma. Like, What's the answer in that worldview to the problem of evil? Is there one? It's it's just a perceive evil is just a perceived. Well, that's the yin and yang symbol, right? They're two halves sure. of the same. It's just a difference of perception by your conditioned mind. So when you decondition your mind as a separate entity, you see the eternal unity of all things, no differentiation, right? It's very you have to negate everything about yourself that is moral and individual and separate, which is why which is why when you see people get really into Eastern mysticism, they get like a blank look. And they get very mm-hmm. ethereal because they're trying as hard as possible to push their own self away. Because when you push yourself away, then everything becomes one. But you can't actually do it. You've never right. met that mythical, enlightened person who thinks that way. Yeah, that's yeah, that's absurd. Yeah, and you, yeah, we should <laughs> say that more often. Like that's that's really really dumb, and you know that's wrong. Like that's that's the way that you confront. I think. Yeah. You know, yes, I agree, that. and yeah. that's that's the thing about. Um, Ramaswamy, it's like, okay, yeah, he's saying lots of really cool based things, but (laughs) you you know, like, great. I'm glad that there's a guy up there saying climate change is a hoax on the debate stage. Like, (laughs) praise God and hallelujah for someone saying it, but like, that doesn't make him a good guy, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Right. 
Right. It's a lot like Andrew Tater or some of the red pill guys who would say exactly. they could diagnose the problem. They can see, well, to pretend that men and women are, are, are exactly the same and, and should, you know, there's, there's no distinction between the two or, you know, that mass, that masculinity is bad. Like they can diagnose the problems correctly, but they can't reach the solutions apart from the Christian world being a, and apart from the God of the universe. Yes. And that's, that's literally why I do what I do is I, I yep. navigated through the masculinity dialogue for so long and ultimately found that it had no durable answers outside of Christ, right? Yeah. It begins and ends in Christ, period, end of discussion. And you're actually seeing how real that is as many guys in the quote-unquote manosphere, they're just blowing up left and right because they have no foundation for what they believe, even, yeah. even Andrew Tate to some degree. Right, right. And he's even, you know, he's sampling Islam and he's trying, I think he's, yeah, some extent he's trying to find an explanation uh, for what he's, what he's trying to, to, to feel out in the world that, you know, things aren't right. And he's looking for like the, you know, something that's, that's powerful and strong. I think he's looking at the average Christianity in the West today that's super weak and effeminate. And um, he's saying, well, that's not it. But, you know, if only he could see, you know, the true Christianity, the historic faith where we can say these things, we can speak with boldness, we can embrace masculinity. Um, you know, I wish, I wish people like that could see, you know, that part of Christianity, even though it's a minority, unfortunately, right now. Hi, everyone. And welcome to this update edition of Will Reforms His Coffee, Listeners will remember that back during Reformation May, my then new sponsor, Reformation Coffee, inspired me to reform my coffee experience. I had previously been lost in the spiritual darkness of diner drip coffee and pour and forget French press for my morning caffeination. But with the quality of Reformation Coffee, I decided it was time to try a brewing method appropriate for their excellent hand-roasted beans. Brandon from Reformation recommended pour over, so that's what I got into. And now I'm four months into that adventure and wanted to share an update. The bottom line is, I can't imagine going back to French press without some serious modifications. And while I still enjoy a cup of diner drip coffee, because who doesn't besides Brandon, it's not my favorite cup of coffee. My favorite cup of coffee is mine. One thing to know about pour over coffee is that there are many recipes. And by recipes, I don't mean with ingredients. All you need is coffee and water. To adulterate coffee with milk or sugar is a heresy, as we all know. Instead, I mean grams of ground coffee beans, milligrams of water, and stages of pouring. Turns out you don't just grind the beans and pour the water over them. That would be far too easy. Instead, you pour in stages. How much water to pour, when, and how many times is the subject of fierce debate. Until one late night on Twitter, I saw that Brandon Lansdowne had posted his V60 pour-over recipe, and I jumped all over it. Now, all that technical stuff aside, there have been several key improvements. First, I've learned how to use my equipment. I had an issue with my burr grinder. The ground beans were sticking to the container, but as it turns out, that's due to static electricity, which dissipates if I give it about 30 seconds, so everything is much neater. Also, while many of my friends are going pretty hard on coffee fasts, I'm drinking less coffee overall, but the quality is better. I've gone from two big cups of French press to one reasonable cup of pour over and I'm good. And finally, the pour over has become part of my morning routine. I look forward to it. It's something relatively mindless I can do when waking up while my brain is still getting going. I can listen to Canon Plus while making Reformation coffee pour over and getting ready for my morning Bible study and generally feel pretty satisfied that I have become the Christian I always warned myself about. Dat post mill, baby. Now, you don't have to get into pour over like I have, but I do think it's time to do some serious reflection about who and where you get your coffee from. Reformation Coffee makes you four key promises. 
One, they say we will serve God and glorify his name with our business. Two, we will strive to serve you the highest quality, freshly roasted coffee. Three, we will roast your coffee within three days of your order. And four, we will ship your coffee within four days of your order. Fresh roasted, fresh shipped, high quality, God glorifying, Christendom building coffee? Bro, what are you waiting for? With this one small change, you can help the Post Mill Project and ensure your hard-earned coffee dollars aren't going to woke megacorporations who hate you. So go to ReformationCoffee.com now to learn about their different roasts of beans, including decaf, which we shan't discuss further. And if you enter the code SUBFREE when you register for a new subscription, you can even get a free 12-ounce bag of coffee on the house. Again, go to ReformationCoffee.com to purchase these fine roasted beans and enter the code SUBFREE with your new subscription to get one free 12-ounce bag. And thanks for coming along for this episode of Will Reforms His Coffee. I'll be sure to keep you posted as my journey continues. And until then, happy sipping. Well, so that, that, that takes us back a little bit to the start of the conversation talking about Christian nationalism, because I put Christian nationalism together with a robust masculine form of Christianity that is truly about that life in terms of taking dominion. And yet there's so much pushback against it, even the term, maybe because they, they feel that uh, they feel the return of the king coming. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not opposed to having a Christian nation or to the United States being a Christian nation. Like that's not my concern with the term at all. It's, it's more like a... Yeah. You know, like I don't want to be associated with Michael General Michael Flynn, who you know is saying that you know pastors should read the Constitution on Sundays and the Bible. But he would call himself a Christian <laughs> nationalist as well. So I'm like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be perceived as part of that at all. I'd rather you know stick with terms that are better defined. But I completely, un- I, I understand your point where there's like this fear to to break with the status quo and, and embrace a more robust form of Christianity that's more historic and doesn't have the, I guess, weights that the 20th century has put around our necks. Mm-hmm. That isn't that isn't ultimately Gnostic, right? That isn't ultimately detached from the concerns of the world. That isn't ultimately captured by feminism and believes in, in male headship and and believes in 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 ideas like that. And that says like, well, we're here on this earth to take dominion. Let's get about the business of dominion taking instead of saying like our inheritance will be in heaven and we don't need to worry about it. And this we'll just trust it to the secularists and everything will be fine. It's like I don't I don't I don't know I don't know about that. I don't think that's so true, guys. Right, right. We lose down here. No, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and that's that's the, that was the big the big um, moment that clicked for me with post millennialism mm-hmm. was was understanding because I like many grew up knowing about like left behind and pre millennialism and Jesus is coming back like I didn't know what to make about any of that but certainly I could look around and say like yeah things look pretty bad um, but to understand but but to, but the first thing that made me think about consider post millennialism was to understand the way that pre millennialism millennialism logically led people into their basements into a retreatist stance. Yeah. Right. Like if Jesus is coming back soon, like why invest in anything at all? Like let's just like run out the clock essentially on earth. And and that leads to some of the degenerate social degeneration we're seeing today as Christians have retreated from the public sphere. Now, like I'm no theologian, but I can say that as a young man who still wants to have a good life and, and, and not live in <laughs> trash world. Um, <laughs> I would, li- I would like to have a reason to fight for something. And I saw post-millennialism initially as giving me a good reason and a good thing to fight for, but to find that it's actually a very valid and very powerful and historical eschatological position that yeah. was like, let's go. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, that's really interesting that you, that you put your, your finger on that point where, like it goes against the heart of a young man to be a retreatist in a sense. Like yeah. They know that they're built to not do that. They're built to take dominion and to, and to gain ground. 
Um, so to have a theology that says, well, you know, Christianity is all about losing. In a sense, it is. Like, you know, you're talking about suffering and, and um, how that sanctifies us. So there is a sense in which, of course, like, you know, the Christian life is about suffering. You know, Second Timothy says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Yep. Right? But, but the point is that the suffer leads to victory. Right, the, the church. So it's true on the individual Christian life. You know, for you and I, we're going to spend the rest of our lives suffering, whether it's you know over persecution because we're a Christian faith, whether it's cancer, you know, um, it, anything even to a lesser extent. All that is meant to sharpen us and to to bring us closer to glory and to refine you know the character of Christ in our souls. But it's even true, I think, um, in a in a global sense with the church, where you know for the past two thousand years. You know, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church where the more we suffered, the more we gained ground where, you know, the entire continent of Europe for 1500 years was Christianized and, and people had ready access to the gospel. And of course, there was a reformation and so forth. But, you know, the, the worldview was a Christian one where, you know, people understood life and death and, and the future in, in explicitly Christian terms. And even in recent centuries, you know, uh, the gospel has gone to Africa and South America and Southeast Asia and new parts of the world that it hadn't been before. You know, the, the story of the past 2,000 years has been the advance of the Christian faith, even through suffering. So maybe certain Christians at certain times, you know, quote unquote, lose down here. But really, there's no sense in which any Christian loses. We have victory in Christ. The true Christian has has real meaningful victory in, in our Lord. Um, that's why the, there's the church militant here on the earth that is fighting battles. And the church tri triumphant is the term that has historically been used for the church in heaven, where... Um, you know, their victory has been won. They can lay their swords down. They can rejoice and, and watch as, you know, the church still on the earth advances the victory forward even more. So it, it is, you know, that, that soldier language, especially in scripture, really resonates with me. And I think with a lot of other young guys saying, you know, Christianity is not merely about like showing up to a mega church on a Sunday morning and singing a really cheesy worship song along with a, a guy in, you know, uh, skinny jeans. It's, it's about you know, how do I kill my flesh? How do I serve my Lord? How do I advance his cause in the earth? Whether it's, you know, street evangelism, whether it's starting media companies, whether it's hosting podcasts, whether it's, you know, running for elected office, whatever the case may be, you know, we're we is built into the heart of, of Christians and especially the heart of men in a unique sense to take dominion, to fill the earth and subdue it. So when you were, when you were just, so you grew up in a mega church environment that was probably not that. And as you discovered that within, within the, the reform faith, when you went to college, did you find that the men and I guess maybe the women around you as well in that environment, do you find that they embodied those principles? Like, was that, was that fighting spirit there as part of that campus group? Absolutely. Yeah. There is always awesome. the mindset of how do we reach people for the gospel? You know, how do I reach this friend who's, who's Jewish or who's, uh, you know, a secular atheist? Uh, how do I get, how do I answer this question you had for me? You know, those kind of questions were common, like you said, for, for both men and women. I don't mean to say that women also don't have sure. a part in the Great Commission, right? Um, but yeah, for, for sure. And those are the people who got me into abortion clinic ministry. They were the ones who were willing to spend, you know, Saturday mornings not sleeping in or, or not being hungover, but going and, you know, trying to save babies from from death and destruction. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so again, yeah, like seeing that mindset, even with young people was, was moving to me. Um, and, and eventually won me over to Christianity. God used that in my life to, to show me how anemic my own faith was. Oh, really? Okay. So that was, that was, that was a thing for you to see that difference in, in the power of faith was one of the things that won you over. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. That, that's actually okay. true. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think most people who would go to the, the mega church I was, I was talking about that I grew up in, um, you know, they would, they would go to Sunday morning church, um, and, but if their kid had a, had a travel game for baseball, they would skip church that weekend and they wouldn't think mm. anything of it. So Christianity was an accessory to their life. It wasn't what was dominating their life, you know, obeying God and, um, 
taking Dominion was, was not a lifestyle for them. It was just an addition or an accessory. Um, right. So seeing the exact opposite of that, like I said, people knowing their Bible even, um, but also people living out their faith um, in their vocation as a student, but also missionally in a certain sense, that was very powerful for me to see the contrast. So give, I, I believe that the most important task between in, in Christian men right now uh, is to uh, resuscitate the heart of other Christian men within the churches around the country. Like I think there's, and, and by heart, I don't necessarily mean the emotional seat of feelings. I mean heart as in courage, like have some heart, have like heart, like heart of a lion. I think that's a that's a, uh, a a definition of heart that often gets lost, right? In the in the notion of sensitivity that the word usually means. So resuscitating the courageous heart of Christian men around the country is, I think, the most important task for any Christian today. And so, and so, as you think back to that transition that you went through from sort of the mega church, if, mega churches are generally a, a very uh, effeminate environment for men. I, I have not been part of one, but it seems that way to me. Yeah. And and you transitioned into into a more robust historical masculine Christian faith. Like, how would you how would you begin building bridges across to the land that you came from? Well, how do we begin reaching those men? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think a big part of the Christian life is imitation and examples, right? So mm. throughout the language in the New Testament, you see Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And of course, like Philippians 2, Paul holds Christ as the example of masculine humility, where he goes and he suffers and dies for, for the sake of his people. Um, or even in, I believe it's 1 Peter 5, where, where pastors are called to be an example for the flock. Uh, so I think as, as I guess, your normie uh, Christian men, you know, the people who haven't been exposed to the historic faith uh, see you know, bold Christian men actually being Christian men as, as they were, as they ought to be. And as their own souls tell them they should be, I think that's something that could, could move them in that right direction. W- would you agree with that? Or, or do you have more ideas to that end? Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great start to it because I think you're right that, that there is a, f- a spirit of, of imitation, but I guess to push back on the idea though, not necessarily like just because we're going to kick the ball around. I think that there's, there's such a, an idea of, you know, Christ meek and mild and self-sacrificing, which are aspects of, of his character, but they're not the totality of who he is, that, they, that that imitation would naturally slide in a direction of of softness as opposed to boldness, which I think Christ, right. especially Paul, also embodied. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, even even the, the process leading up to the cross, he, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, as, as Luke says, right? Mm. Where he's he's going, he's going into the storm, right? He's not he's not ducking away and, and, and running the opposite direction. He's, he's willingly embracing the suffering. And um, yeah, that, that's certainly true as well is, is actually, yeah, not merely uh, being a, a servant leader, right? That's the term that gets thrown around a lot is in functionally that just means, you know, let everybody walk all over you. Um, <laughs> there's, there's essentially what's like, you know, servant leadership is real and it's, it's true. Um, you know, but also there's, you do actually have to be a leader. You have to build stuff. You have to call people to a common vision. That's what leadership is. Yeah, and I think uh, you just uh, you just gave me this idea, like behind servant leadership. Like, yes, the idea is to to um, serve by leading, and yes, Christ may have embodied servant leadership, but there was never any question that he was the leader. There right. wasn't a lot of debate around that. You didn't see yeah. a lot of argument, right? He ser- he served by leading, and he was leading. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, so speaking of, of mega churches, there was um early this summer example of, of Saddleback Church out in California, Andy and mm. Stacy Wood, who succeeded Rick Warren as the two quote-unquote pastors of that church, so the woman included as one of the pastors, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they did an at, at the movie series this year 
and uh, during there was, <laughs> there was a Sunday where the whole theme was about Toy Story. So uh, the mm-hmm. wife was dressed up as, as Bo Peep, and then Andy Wood was dressed up as Woody. And you can kind of see it's it's really I felt really bad for Andy Wood because his wife was like, "Thank you for being a good sport on stage," and like kind of pats him on the shoulder, and you know, "Thank you for being a good good little boy about this." And he's just looking very sheepish. So I think you see in in much of American Christianity, especially in the megachurch world, uh, passive men, and, and passive men is a very uh, quick path to disaster. A, 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 an older guy at my church always says, um, "What is it? It's like." Um, aggressive men um, or abusive men have slain their thousands, passive men, their tens of thousands, right? So mm. passive men is like, it's like the unspoken cancer in our society where, you know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, um, the abusive men who, who you know, harm their wives or, or they, you know, they have bad tempers, whatever the case may be, but nobody wants to talk about the passive man who completely abdicates, right? You, you mm-hmm. see that even with Adam, you see that with Abraham in the Old Testament where he says he follows Sarah's lead with, you know, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go sleep with Hagar. Um, that yeah. passive masculinity is is really toxic. Yeah, you see it with Adam. Like Eve gets tempted by the serpent and deceived, and Adam's like, "Yeah, sure, let's 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 go ahead and let's go ahead and give this a shot." Right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Let's 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 dwell on. Let's take a moment to dwell on this because um, this is this is exactly what I mean about resuscitating the heart of 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 young, particularly young Christian men, but Christian men in general is this this uh, I'll call it catechized passivity. Mm-hmm. specifically because there's so much shaming around abusive men that, um, that that I think there are there are potentially even as many as millions of young men that are afraid of their own masculine strength and their own masculine uh, leadership and force and you know dominance like being dominant not being domineering but being dominant specifically because feminism and women have decried the abusive man the abusive father the abusive pastor for decades. And so you have a lot of men that just like wave, wave the white flag. Like that's not me. Don't mistake that for me. So I'm just going to withdraw from the battlefield. That's, that's what I see going on. Yeah, no, I certainly agree where, yeah, there's a big, a big symptom of this is, is like the, the death by a thousand qualifications where if you want to say something forthrightly and boldly, uh, you have to qualify in a million different ways that won't offend people. So, uh, Balcom had a good example of this recently where he was talking about how pastors approach homosexuality where if they're supposed yep. to be preaching on Romans one on a given Sunday, they'll say, well, you know, I, I have my homosexual friends and, you know, I appreciate them and they're great people. And you give a million different, you know, I guess caveats to what you're about to say, which is like homosexual, homosexuality is sin. It's against God's design. It'll lead your soul to hell. Whereas uh, I think Vody replaced that with like pedophilia, right? Oh, my pedophile <laughs> friends are great. And, you know, I love them and they're such sweet people. Like we wouldn't talk about that with, with sins that are, that are not culturally accepted. Right. So, an example of a culturally accepted sin would be like a passive man, whereas a culturally rejected one would be, you know, pedophilia or an abusive man. But we're in reality, we as Christians, we have to call out all sin um, in its proportion um, and not be afraid to do so, no matter what anybody says. Yeah, right. Yeah, there, there's there's the the fear of hurting someone's feelings, or the or um, maybe there are plenty of men that are skilled in in theological apologetics, but they're not actually skilled in masculine theological apologetics like what does yeah. god say about what it means to be a man they're not prepared to fight that battle and so when the when the feminist clause come come out which exists pretty heavily within the church the men just buckle they just they just buckle because they don't know they don't know where to stand and they're ready to make qualifications well you know I'd, uh, and you see that in its I, I guess in its pinnacle manifestation where you we talked about the criminalization of abortion oh well we don't want to seem like we're anti-women like, yeah. what do you mean they're committing murder right right yeah exactly yeah, that's the longhouse phenomenon, right? Where a lot of institutions in the Western world, whether it's academia, whether it's the media, whether it's 
government, you name it, business, it's been it's been taken over by like a, a predominantly feminine uh, zeitgeist, where essentially mm. that is is women leaving uh, the home and going into the workforce. Um, but you know, if you work at a big company, you have to be really careful what you say. You can't tell the wrong joke, or you're going to get sent down to HR and get and get reprimanded by probably a, a female HR employee or a man Karen. who is essentially a female. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So like that feminine social spirits, I guess you could call it, um, dominating most institutions. But if it gets to the wrong place, if it gets to the military, you know, in, in other institutions that must absolutely be masculine and very masculine in order for them to work, you know, you see DEI in the military. It's completely destructive to um, what the military is supposed to be and what everybody knows is supposed to be. So now you don't have young men signing up to serve. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, if we if we actually should have a military as big as we currently do. But the point stands that, right. you know, most could, most like white conservative men don't want to be in the military right now. And uh, whereas historically, that's now that's been like the bread and butter of the military and its backbone. Uh, so it starts to just crumble all society. Right. There is an example where the, the Air Force was designing fire jet outfits for women who are pregnant. Right. There's the extra space in the in the front of the uniform for a pregnant what? belly. Um which everything about that is just insane. But, you know, again, you can't, you can't call that out because it's too mean. It's saying that women can't do this or women can't do that. Whereas in reality, like, no, men should be in the military. It's actually an abomination for a woman to, to serve in the armed forces. Um, and we should be not afraid to say that. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, that there was a, a pregnant uniform. Yeah. Is this a pilot's uniform or just, yeah, a, just a, a right. Yep. Yeah, a pilot's uniform. So climbing into the cockpit of a, of a jet and while you're pregnant, presumably. Oh, yeah. That's awful. Eric Kahn sent a tweet yesterday about, which I wholly agree with about that. Women's combat sports like MMA and stuff like that are abhorrent and, 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 uh, disgrace the disgrace women. And I, I wholly agree with that. And it just shows, Oh, but they're two consenting adults. Like it doesn't matter. They're two consenting adults. Like it's yeah. still God's world. And he still made us. That's an example. Right, right. Because the response what we're saying is, well, that means you hate women. Again, like the same thing with the criminalization <sighs> issue. Where in reality, it's because we actually love women more than anybody else that we don't want to see them brutalized or, or beat up or anything of that nature, right? So it's it's not to it's not loving to say, you know what, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and op, hop into that octagon and go and you know get punched and get kicked and you know completely destroy your your natural beauty, which God says is a blessing to you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's just disgusting. And, and Christians are the ones who actually love women. You know, I, I appreciate how Jeff Durbin always says in those street interactions, how um, if somebody says, well, what about, you know, the 12 year old who gets raped? Jeff will usually say, you know, well, why? I think the father should get the death penalty. You think the baby mm-hmm. should get the death penalty. Which one which one of us actually loves women more, me or you? Because you probably oppose the death penalty for the rapist. Right. right so, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, no, I, that's, I always, I, I always follow with that as well. I say, you know, I, I think that, I think that let's give the death penalty to the rapist. Does that make you feel better? And then those like, yes, no, <laughs> right. Because they, fl- cause they <laughs> right. realize, you know what I mean? That ultimately what they say that they're about is not what they're actually about. Right. Yeah. It's not about, it's not, a, it's not about, um, uh, anything other than let's say like, well, we need to, we need to protect women at all costs. And that means that they should be able to commit homicide. And I actually had someone say to me once that, that it is the mother that bestows, um, that bestows human worth on the child. That if the mother does not decide the child has worth then the child does not have worth. And I'm like, wow. And you shall be like God, right? Yeah, really? No, that's actually so true. I was actually just talking about my wife about this last night where I think the actual standard in our culture for you know, human life, it goes back to autonomy where it says, if I want the baby, it's a human life because we, we see right. the abortion clinic escorts who are outside of the 
abortion clinic in Philadelphia, they'll, they'll congratulate a pregnant woman on being pregnant if she's just walking by the clinic and isn't going inside. Oh, when are, you know, how long, how far along are you? When are you due? Or if they, if they're carrying an infant, they'll say, oh, this is, you know, such a sweet little baby. And they'll, they'll dough over the little child. But then another woman comes into the front doors and we try to reach out to them. We say, Hey, you know, we'd love to help you. Do you need financial medical help? Do you need, you know, we, we'd love to come and just talk to you for a minute. You know, they'll treat us like we're demons because we're trying to reach that same child, right? The same exact, you know, they're two different babies. The only difference is does their mom want them or not? And apparently that's the, that's what bestows human worth and value. I've, I, I, I consider from time to time sending the following tweet that you should get a woman either not actually pregnant, get her in one of those like pregnant kind of costumes, you know, cause you can get like a belly pad that makes women look pregnant and just have her stand out in a park, like chain smoking cigarettes. And when yeah. people come up and say, you shouldn't do this, like, Oh, don't worry. I'm on my way to get an abortion. See what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. Just yeah. put that on hidden camera. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And um, I think Tim Poole had a guest on recently who like they were pushing back on this, this pro abortion guest who was saying that you shouldn't smoke meth while you're pregnant. And like Tim Poole kind of called him out and said, whoa, whoa, hold up. You're saying this isn't a human being, but you, you shouldn't be able to smoke meth. Like why not? So yeah, it's deeply inconsistent in every, every way. And I think everybody knows that. What did the person say? I don't, I don't remember. The, the clip I saw that was viral kind of cut up at, cut off after that okay. where Tim Poole's like, well, hold, hold up. Wait, 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 wait. Like that was kind of his reaction. But this is all, it's all, it's so mental. It's so mental. Like it, you, once you start really looking at it, like you look around the powers on, you know, everything's still running. We're living in a civilization, but when you really begin looking at the values that undergird the whole thing, it really is clown world. There's no other word for it. Like how else yeah. are you supposed to just clown word, clown world, trash world? Right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. So Brett Baggett, who's a, he's a pastor down in Oklahoma, abolitionist pastor in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. He actually preached a sermon from Amos and he called it clown world. And he talks about, you know, the utter insanity to which we've been given over in our minds. And Romans one talks about that too, where, you know, God gave them over to the lust of their flesh, the depravity of their minds and so forth, where there's actually a judgment from God against sin. So, so Brett Baggett's point in that sermon was to say that, you know, it's not that this is a sign that we're going to be judged. This is the judgment that we're receiving you know, if we have depraved minds and this, that are leading us to do absurd things to ourselves and others, you know, God is looking at the heavens, like Psalm 2 says, looking from the heavens and laughing at us, right? We're casting mm-hmm. off the cords of his law and we're just going into deeper and deeper absurdity, you know, mutilating our flesh um, in the case of transgenderism, you know, killing babies and, and you know, worse things. And we're just destroying ourselves and God is, is holding us in derision, as the Psalm says, where he knows that what we're doing is, is evil and wrong. And he's actually giving us over to the to her own depravity in that sense. So again, the only hope for us, I think, is is the gospel, is is uh, the Christian worldview, uh, seeing things how they actually are uh, in God's world, or else it's going to get even worse. Do you want to talk about how this feeds into the work you're doing with uh, the Sentinel? Absolutely, yeah. So the Sentinel is a conservative news and media outlet owned and operated by Christians. Um, mm. So we are. You're going to see stories about the Second Amendment, about the military, about healthcare, about the economy. Um, you know, religious freedom issues, abortion as well. We, like I said, we've been doing some reporting on that recently. Uh, it's just it's just handling the news of the day um, from a Christian worldview. And so that you're going to see explicitly Christian commentary in every single article. You're not going to see, you know, Bible verse references necessarily in every article. Um, but the worldview is going to be there. We're, we're seeing these things through a Christian lens. Um, so the, the quote that we keep going back to is Martin Luther saying, you know, the Christian shoemaker is not a Christian shoemaker because he etches little crosses into the side of the shoe you know he's a Christian shoemaker because he's producing the best shoes on the market and they're, mm. they're well-crafted and it's because his God 
is a creator and, and cares about good craftsmanship. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going for at the Sentinel is, is not necessarily, um, you know, merely talking about Christian issues, quote unquote, because really everything, if you think about it, is a Christian issue, right? There's a yeah. Christian way to run an economy. Uh, there's a Christian way to run a, run a company. Um, so we're trying to capture that spirit in our reporting. Mm-hmm. But it's still not even like Jesus smuggling either, where it's like you just do a whole big long thing and then you just drop Jesus at the at the end. I, that I don't <laughs> like either. I think that's the wrong way of going about evangelism, and many people do it. Yeah, right. You're not going to read a, a you know an article on our site about the economy, and then at the very end, there's not going to be a gospel presentation. You know, like we're just going <laughs> to tell you about what's going on in the economy, and that's going to be the end of it. And we do we do have some some stuff to that end. So on on Sundays we have like a, a Sunday edition we call it. So we'll have a theologian or somebody write an article that usually pertains to like public squared Christianity. But other than that, you know, our content is just really good conservative reporting. How's that been? How's that been going so far? I get the emails every day. I read them. I, I love the topics you cover. I especially, I used to live in San Francisco for years, so I, I've been loving your reporting in California. I, I confess a bit of schadenfreude there, but you know, that's another, that's another <laughs> conversation topic. For sure. Yeah. It's going really well. So we're growing quickly. Um, we have, I believe as of last month, 150,000 subscribers. We'll, we'll be approaching 250 in October. Um, wow. And that's for our email list. So our, our articles go to a lot of people. And uh, we're starting to, you know, like explore advertising and ways to make revenue and money. Um, and I believe later this year, we're going to, it should be in, at the end of October, if I'm not mistaken, we're going to have a documentary called Seals Beat Biden come out. So it's about the, the Navy SEALs, many of whom, by the way, were Christians, who stood up against the Biden military vaccine mandate and actually got uh, Congress to repeal it. Uh, to nix mm. it in, in one of the um, national defense bills. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be a great project. We're probably going to release it in two parts, uh, the documentary, <laughs> but it'll be available for free. And if you sign up for our email newsletter, uh, you'll get it for free. Mm. It seems like it seems like all roads in this conversation lead to Jeff Durbin, because I think he helped them draft that mil- that exemption letter, right? Yep. Yeah, he'll be in the he'll be in the documentary. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So, so uh, last week, well, when this episode, when this episode comes out, it will be last week. I did an interview with Nate Fisher from new founding and we talked about Christians building institutions. So I really like what you're talking about with like, we need to build media institutions that come from a Christian worldview without necessarily putting a giant cross, you know, on the, on the headline of every, of every article. Right. No, that's exactly right. So if you, if you go to our website, republicsentinel.com, you're, you're not going to be able to tell that it's a Christian, you know, news outlet right away. You know, maybe if you dig a little bit, you'll find something, you know, explicitly Christian. But for the most part, like I said, it's just going to be good reporting. Uh, so, yeah, the need for the hour is not more pure flicks. It's not, you know, stuff that, right. you know, pertains to a very specific audience. Uh, we'd rather go for, you know, like a Lord of the Rings than a Fireproof, for example. So we're not trying to make it cheesy. We're not trying to, like you said, smuggle in the gospel. Um but it's going to be it's going to be Christian in the sense that it's excellent, and I think you know new founding and organizations like that are aiming for the same thing, saying you know there's a there's a dearth of excellence in our in our economy and in our culture. So if we embrace that again and say we don't care what your skin color, just come and work for us, and um, you know if you do a good job, you do a good job, and if you don't do a good job, you'll get kicked to the curb. That's the kind of value that built America, and that w- that should be returned, or else we're not going to have an America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean Nate was talking about how conservatives. There's been the American right has retreated to conservatism instead of advanced on the front into Christianity and actually advocating for Christian principles. Like mere conservatism seems to be the position yeah. that many have adopted. Right, building that big tent. So we want to have everybody in, involved in our in our quote unquote conservatism, even even to the extent of Caitlyn Jenner. Right, you know, right. he's a he, yeah he she he is a Bruce Jenner. 
Bruce Jenner is, is a uh, contributor on Fox News, right? So I think yeah. I made a, a, a joke uh, last week when David Hogg, uh, radical gun activist, anti-gun activist, came out against uh, a move that the um, governor of New Mexico made to, to uh, she is attempting to ban yeah. open, open and concealed carry for 30 days, saying it's a public health emergency order. Uh, so David Hogg came out and said, well, you shouldn't do that. So I was making a joke saying, well, he's going to be a Fox News contributor because even though he's on the radical left, look, he's part of our part of our team because he's he's against these other radicals. But all that really does is just shifts the goalposts further and further into depravity. So, you know, if Caitlyn Jenner is, is somebody you can expect to see on your TV screen in the evenings, you know, that's just that's just going to normalize the complete absurdity that is his existence of saying that he's he's a he's a woman when he's really a man wearing dresses and makeup and getting plastic surgery. I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned Hogg, um, though not him specifically, because because being a young man in your, the first half of your 20s, you have a very different outlook on America than many people in politics who are much older. And so as you're looking out at you know, 50, 60, 70 years of life as an American citizen, as a contributor, you know, what, what do things look like? Your Generation Z, I think, is technically, not, not that I care for labels, but just to understand, what do things look like from your perspective? Because you have um, Harry Sisson, is that his name? Yeah, and then you yeah, have like right. David Hogg, and you have what seems to be a, a pretty stiff contest for the quote-unquote younger generation. And now here you are entering into the scene with a strong Christian conservative you know, set of values. How do you find that your message and your perspective is being received amongst your peers who aren't just naturally biased in your direction, let's say, or favorable to your perspective? Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, will respect just any kind of boldness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the the young man who's who's not really talked about is, you know, the the young man who's just gunning toward conservatism or, or more conservative viewpoints because the whole world is is completely liberal and woke and idiotic in that sense. Uh, there was a really interesting poll that came out that showed this graph of of young men and how conservative they become. I think you know what I'm talking about. Where it's like a, young a complete, women, yeah, completely like hockey stick upward yeah. with with young men embracing conservative politics. So that's the kind of person that is unheard. Um, but I think mm-hmm. that's the you know you you probably have a lot more thoughts on this because you're so deep in this space. But that's the kind of person who the, fu- the future depends on. Uh, for the for Christians and and just the sane world, the non-clown, non-trash world is reaching those men and recruiting them to our ranks. I agree. I agree. And I think that's 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 the appeal of Andrew Tate, right? Is like at least someone is saying the thing with boldness and with confidence. Though his solutions may be trash, at least he diagnoses the problems clearly and boldly. And there's a real thirst for that within within Christendom. And yet, when Christians actually do diagnose problems with boldness, you have all the Christians come flying. And it's like, well, that's not very Christian, and that's just like, I, yeah. I can't even start. I can't even get started. Maybe you can comment. I'm they, sure you have seen a plenty Ukraine of that. flag in their bio, and and you know, oh. they, they have their pronouns. Maybe how many times they've been vaxxed and which vaccine they've gotten. Yeah, that's but a, not that's even a, but not even that. Like, I think that there's a pervasive culture. I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from. There's a pervasive culture of policing within with you know with Christianese language and all that stuff. You know, it's like, and I I don't know what to do with it, but it drives me crazy because I think everyone I, I observe. You know, I better be careful what I say because I don't want to piss off the you know Christian police who will come sailing into anything to police what you're saying to make sure it's Christian enough. Right. It, it, I think it hampers the entire dialogue. Yeah, for sure. What was the Stephen Wolf tweet? It was like uh, white evangelicals are the lone bulwark. That, yeah, that <laughs> yes. was an interesting um, uh, Rosbach test where you kind of see what yeah. everybody's made of when when that comes out. And you know, I don't, you know, 
there, I think the instinct immediately was to just rebuke it to no end, right? Where you say, um, right. you know, like this is racist. It wasn't racist. You may di- disagree with the point. You can you can add the caveat maybe of well, yeah, there's obviously like black and Hispanic conservative Christians who are also sure. the part of the bulwark, so to speak. But the instinct was to just denounce it to no end, to assume the act the absolute worst because he was talking about in that, in that case white people favorably. Um, but that's right. Yeah, you're right. It's the Christian police. It's you know, as soon as you say something that's not part of the 20th, 20th century norm, um, you know, all, all the assumptions that we put on top of, you know, our, our Christian faith because of the post-war understanding, uh, you get immediately just cast out into the, into the streets. You're not welcome anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's a policing of dialogue styles as a policing of speech. It's, it's almost a thought policing to make sure that it fits into like what I about some I'm, I'm sort of late to this, like some 1990s version of really neutered passive Christianity. Like maybe they would call it big Eva Christianity, but before yeah. big Eva was really a thing, it's this kind of like, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I lack the words to describe it, but it's trying to bash uh, men who would otherwise be outspoken defenders of the faith in the public square to make sure that they're using the right terms in the right way. Otherwise it's not Christian. And it's like battle is messy. It's messy. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't know that I, I don't know that enough Christian men or women have the taste for that kind of messiness of battle. Yeah, style of speech is a great point too. Because yeah, like yeah. it's the longhouse. It's it's adopting feminine yeah. norms and how we engage even intellectually. So I'm reading um like I mentioned Calvin's Institutes right now, and I'm almost done with mm-hmm. book one. Um, but the way that he rebuts his opponents is really impressive because he's a scholar and he's brilliant, but he's also like. He's coming, he's like stepping into a boxing ring is kind of how it reads. Like he's, he's just like insulting them nonstop is basically the only way to see it. Like yeah. he's saying, you know, these, these insolent fools dream of, you know, this delusion. And, and that's the kind of speech he uses like on every single page where he's, he's looking at like Arianism or various heresies, uh, old and new in, in his time and just calling them out and not being afraid to say, this is idiotic. Like you cannot, this is unfaithful. You can't come away from the scriptures with this and just, and he's not, He's not saying, oh, well, you know, there's there's good things they have to say, too. He's just saying, like, this is an error. That, you know, this is, this is stupid. It needs to be, you know, seen for what it is. And I think that instinct is completely foreign to the average 21st century Christian male. Yeah, someone needs to tell John Calvin that's not very Christian. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned and and what uh, Luther was a bull in China, not a bull in a china shop, bull in the vineyard, something like that. Was that the term that was used to describe him? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects. Let's talk about this fascinating and frustrating uh, Protestant Catholic conflict that seems to have erupted on Twitter recently, which is driving me crazy. But let's talk about that because I've seen you. I avoid it because <laughs> I, I have things to do and I don't want to ruin my enti- I don't want to ruin my yeah. entire day yeah. with with Twitter. Not that there's anything wrong uh, with engaging the dialogue, but where did this come from and what do we do about it? Not that I don't have a good answer, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, maybe. Well, where did the Protestant Catholic divide come from? That well, came from the fit fight. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, like, well, why, like, why? I understand that there's historical division, yeah. legitimate historical division. I understand the dialogue, but why is it erupted on Twitter suddenly? I mean, I guess naturally it would go anywhere where the discussion happens, but it, it almost seems like, it almost seems driven. It, seemed, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem totally organic. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that conversation comes up every few months. You know, there'll be some clip okay. of something radical with with Mary circling in it, it. And then, you know, all the Protestants will say that, you know, I 
this is insane. Why would you do this? You know, you're basically worshiping her. And the Catholics say, no, this is Latria or not, or Dulia, or I don't even remember the, the term exactly, yeah. but they'll, they'll have their, their, you know, real response of how to, how to respond to it. But, uh, I saw it with, uh, Taylor Marshall. Uh, he's a Catholic yep. apologist, uh, sort of just tweeting out a bunch of pithy slogans about Catholicism. And some of them, you know, aren't that crazy, but a lot of them were pretty crazy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's how I've seen it is is just uh, around his page, and he he called out me, he called out uh, Smash Bells, um, some other prominent Christian accounts, and you know we were engaging with him and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's multiple dishes you could fall in with respect to that conversation. One is the one that most evangelicals would fall into, which is saying there's nothing from Christian history history that can be valuable for us. You know, everything right. except for Uncle Bob's Baptist Church is is the Antichrist. Whereas, you know, like, I think you can, you can learn a lot from Augustine and uh, men who are, mm-hmm. who in the past and even, even medievals, um, you know, who, like I'm listening, like I said, to, to confessions of Augustine. And this is, this is a Christian man I'm listening to. This is somebody who loves his yeah. Lord, who was converted, um, who sees the depths of his depravity and sin. Um, and of course, you know, especially with respect to baptism and some of the perspectives he's bringing up there, I'm disagreeing with him. Um, but I still see a brother in Christ in his words. And I think mm-hmm. you can, you can miss a lot of that stuff. Uh, but the other ditch, and I think I see that actually along, among young, a lot of young Protestants is, um, they want something historic and grounded, um, mm. in the past. So they're used to the mega churchianity where everything's cutting edge and new. And they're like, this is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith has been around for 2000 years. And then that leads them into, into Romanism. They, they, they swim the Tiber to get that tradition. And that weightiness and that, in that, I guess, awe, sense of awe that um, true Christianity should should bring you in, in a lot of in a lot of cases. Um, so I see the lot with a lot of my friends who who went to Penn, where um, they're becoming Roman Catholic because they say, well, you know, I don't want to just completely discard what the early church did. And, and I think the answer to that is, is is neither do I. That's why I'm a Reformed Protestant, right? You know, I go right. to a church that recites the Apostle Creed, the Apostles Creed, and um, we'll read catechisms and we'll, you know, the pastors will quote from, you know, Ambrose and uh, Maximus, the confessor and, and old guys who can inform our, our view of the faith today. Um, but I think that's really what the Reformation project is about is not, you know, restoring the church, pretending that it somehow went away from the earth, but reforming the church and saying, well, the church right. is is still legitimate, but it needs to reform and we need to cast off the unbiblical stuff and adopt the biblical stuff that we've neglected. Uh, so I think that's what young people ought to do is, is, you know, don't fall into the ditch of, you know, just rejecting all of history, but also embracing the erroneous history, but measure all things according to the word. Mm, yeah, that's, I, I deal with that a lot with guys going to Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I think there's probably a lot of that happening with, with Roman Catholicism now where they want something more substantial, more weighty than baby shark in a pirate ship. I don't know if you saw <laughs> right. that video. Yeah. 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 They, they want something more than that, or they want something even that goes beyond like Billy Graham and their parents' church, and they feel deprived of the weight of church history. And suddenly they discover that there are, you know, 1,950 years of church history or whatever, right? Like, And they go diving into it, and they see these, they see Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy as holding up church history and tradition as almost the supreme authority, and people don't have the, the critical nature to, to examine that in contrast to the scriptures and they throw themselves into the church fathers and right. they never quite, they never come out. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of those people have done a lot less reading the church fathers than they, they may say they are. 
I think they're listening right. to YouTubers and stuff who say that the church fathers are saying certain things. But like I said, you listen to Augustine and you're not compelled to, you know, become a Roman Catholic. It's just, this is a Christian guy. I disagree with him on some points, but this is a brother. Um, so right. I, I think that's the kind of thing that we ought to promote as, as reformed folks where, you know, don't be afraid of reading the church fathers, but don't see the church fathers as, you know, always correct, or you must agree with them with every John tittle of their faith or else you're not a Christian. Um, there is right. a sense in which God is refining the church and its doctrine. I think he's using the Reformation to do that even for the past 500 years. We're, I do hope that, you know, the Roman church will come around. I don't, I don't know if I have a verdict on whether or not, you know, the church at large is the organization of the Antichrist, but, you know, I think the Pope is right. an Antichrist, right? Where he's, he's claiming authority that he, he should not have. He's, he's sitting in the throne of God. Um, but I do, I do hope that, you know, Jesus does call us to have a unified church. And I hope, you know, Rome repents of its errors and doesn't see itself as, as part of the authority, um, but submits to the word, the word of the, the, the shepherd who calls to the sheep, right? The sheep don't get to define um, where we go. It's, it's the shepherd who defines it. I agree. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because it is literally impossible to agree with the church fathers on everything because they all disagree with each other, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the, 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 only, the only source of authority that speaks with a singular unified voice is scripture, right? right. And, and that can all be reconciled to each other. Any apparent, any apparent contradictions within scripture can be reconciled, like Paul and James are a great example. So justification. Right. But you can't reconcile the church fathers. You can't even reconcile the Catholic church to itself right? Except by some, except by some miracle where you have to say like 2000 years, well, I have faith that it all fits together. Well, it actually literally doesn't. Popes, popes anathematize each other. So yeah. which one is right? The one, and, and you know, the, the thing that's so frustrating is, is that Catholics and especially Eastern Orthodox have faith in their church, in their church that runs so deep, it's difficult to get underneath it because their right. priests have already contextualized for them how to understand scripture. And that's the really tough part. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, again, going back to Jeff Durbin, right? Uh, yeah. You, you know, your church will say, you know, your pastors will say, make great points to the effect that whether it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, there's always, if there's an external authority over the Bible, the external authority is the actual authority and the Bible subordinate to that. And I think a lot of Roman Catholics yeah. have been saying that on Twitter this past week where, you know, and that's it's a common trope. Well, who gave you the Bible? It's the Roman Catholic Church that made the Bible, which is absurd because, you know, it's you don't get to, declare what is and what, what is not God's word. His word is apparent <laughs> because like you said, it's internally consistent. It's authoritative by its nature. Uh, so the church did not decide what's in the Bible. It recognized what's in the Bible and it assembled it and, you know, in the fullness of time. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't confuse the, your voice with the voice of God, um, whether it's you as an individual um, or you as just a church in general, uh, because it leads to dangerous errors. Right. Yeah. I'm sure that, I'm sure that uh, Paul and Peter and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them will be so surprised that their words had no authority until the Pope said so. Right. <laughs> a few hundred years from now, someone's going to come along and tell you to listen to this. That's what, just a little epi epigram at the, at the, at the bottom of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and you just, you look at the behavior of the church today and you look at like what the Pope Francis was educated by Paulo Freire, a communist. Like, what do you, how do you answer for that? Right. <laughs> right. right. What another... do we do with that? Yeah, another barb that's sort of thrown in the, in the Protestant direction is, well, look at all, you know, they'll, they'll tweet out some picture of like an affirming pastor, or, you know, a drag queen in an Episcopal church and say, this is what Protestantism produces. But you can find just as many examples of, of crazy LGBT, right. Roman Catholic, you know, church members, priests, whatever. Um, yeah, and then you say, you know, like, um, shoot, what was it? I tweeted out um, one of those videos of, of people just, 
chanting the rosary and, and kneeling before the statue of Mary. And mm. um, some Roman Catholic, I forget who it is, retweeted it and said, you know, this is like a, a caricature. And then they came back with um, like, or, you know, some other example of a Protestant church that's doing something weird. I think it actually was at one of the mega churches. It might've been the baby shark video. And I said, mm. well, I denounce what's going on in that clip. Do you denounce what's going on in the, the clip of the Roman Catholics basically worshiping Mary? And he said, no. <laughs> and I think it's the well, difference, right? Where it, you just, you just, you know, showed your hand where you're willing to accept this clearly unbiblical thing, but I can reject both because the Bible is actually my authority. My, my church is on my authority. I can freely admit, you know, um, my pastors aren't hundred percent correct. I differ, I differ with them on a couple of minor issues and that's okay because, you know, I can, I can filter that with the lens of God's word, but you can't, ha you don't have the same luxury if you're a Roman Catholic because you must believe certain things in the, in the church de fide, um, or else you're not Roman Catholic. You're not consistent with their faith. Right. Exactly. And, and, and what they often come back with on that is saying, well, look how, look how divided Protestants are because you have your own private interpretation of scripture. We need a magisterium to tell us how to interpret scripture. And I really like what James White says, like, okay, well, he doesn't say it in these great, these words, when are you actually going to get around to interpreting scripture? Because there's like five verses they've officially interpreted. It's like, there's a little <laughs> bit more you should probably get started on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of the, the project of, of Christianity over these past 2000 years and into the future is, is delving into God's word and uh, learning it and, you know, plumbing its depths. And I don't think we'll agree on every, every single little thing when Christ returns. I think there's still going to be some lingering questions. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll have some things resolved. Um, like eschatology is one. Um, but yeah. we're probably not going to have everything sorted out. There's really difficult passages, even just singular verses that are hard to get your mind around. There's a bunch of different you know, views on how it fits in a certain context, but yeah. Yeah. And I think these are, these are the challenges. Like, I, I guess faced with all these challenges, like how do we take dominion in our homes? How do we take dominion in our families and in our churches and in our nation, you know, from a Protestant perspective. And then once you actually venture out into the public sphere, you know, you get, you get all the name calling and shaming and deplatforming, and then you start encountering other, other, uh, other believers who have different perspectives and they attack you as well. Like it's pretty, it's not an insignificant challenge to be a to be a believer today, right? Absolutely. Yep. You get attacked on all sides. You get attacked from the world. You get attacked from, you know, professing Christians who even disagree with the way that you speak. Um, if you try to speak in a consistent, clear Christian way, so you're right. And um, but we don't have any choice. We have to be faithful. So, um, so what advice would you give to young Christian men? Who are looking for I don't know maybe hope or inspiration or um, or encouragement you know because you've been on this faith journey for the past I think four years you said and you've deep you've transformed and deepened your faith and you've carried it into the public sphere and paid a heavy cost in some ways as well like what what lessons have you learned from that process you know being a young man that you would pass on to your fellow young men yeah that's right um a big thing I've been reflecting on recently is, is the need to slay dragons, right? There's that, mm. that myth of the, the slaying the dragon, the heroes who slays the dragon is, is so potent. And that's really what all of redemptive history is about is, is Jesus is the snake crusher. He's the one who, who crushes Satan's head by his, by his death and resurrection. and will finally, when he returns. Um, but even Romans 16 says the God of peace is crushing Satan under your feet. So uh, I think cr young Christian men should do what, what, young Christian men have done in every century, which is identify the dragons, right? The dragons in our age are abortion and transgenderism and, and feminism and, and plenty of other evils. 
So go and, and find a band of brothers and go and take those on, right? Whether it's, you know, preaching the gospel at an abortion mill or, um, you know, starting, starting some kind of like public platform to rebut these errors and these issues, um, you know, the absolute worst thing, worst thing you can do is, is stay silent, right? Because your own bones will cry out against you because you know in your conscience that somebody has to defeat these dragons or they're just going to continue tyrannizing everybody around us, um, our nation, our own people. So that's, that's, that's my advice. Um, and again, like that soldier mentality in the Bible is so potent and being in the Lord's army and, and doing his will on the earth. Um, that's the heart of the Lord's prayer even is, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, doing the will of our heavenly father um, in, in sharing the gospel and in, in building things, taking dominion. Uh, that's the work of the great commission. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a constant trope that we need something bigger than ourselves as human beings. So um, there's God himself, but there's also his mission, which is the great commission. So, so I want to push back on that just a little bit. So, so, um, so just, just to, to reach, to reach more men. Yes. There's, there's always a case to be made for starting a platform, Twitter account, podcast, you know, Instagram, whatever it is, blog, et cetera. But what about for the men that aren't called to do that? Because not all men are called to be out there in the public sphere and who just want to work within the context of let's start with their, let's start, start with their, with two things, their church and their friend group. So maybe they're listening to this podcast and they're embedded in a faithful, but maybe more or less effeminate church. I, sure. I know that faithful, but effeminate don't necessarily go together, but let's just say that they, they're strong on a lot of doctrine, but they, but they, they pull back the sharp point of really pressing in on say masculine headship or whatever it is. And so a young man finds himself in this position where he's at, a, he's at an otherwise good church, but it's, it's got a lot of feminine character, effeminate characteristics to it. And he has his friends who are just kind of floating. Maybe they're mm. believers, maybe they're nominal believers. He doesn't want to start a podcast necessarily sure. or reach the public, but he wants to operate within those contexts. What advice would you give to him? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I may be less qualified to answer that, but I think sure. like the example, being an example for others is, is a good one. Um, where mm. I think men tend to rally around other, other strong men. So if you develop strength in yourself and you know, it doesn't just have to be spiritual things. It could just be going to the gym more often and developing just physical strength and, and, you know, having that aura about you of, um, being able to lift heavy weights and, and run decent distances. Um, that's a component part of it too. I don't, I don't want to downplay that either. Um, so I think the, the example element as well, but maybe you have more thoughts on that. Yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, cause that, that is, that is the slaying of the dragon, right? It's to, it's the slaying in the, in the, um, Commonwealth countries like the UK, New Zealand, Australia, like they have a saying, it's, it's called tall poppy syndrome. The tall poppy is the one that gets cut down. Hmm. And so you find people are afraid to stand up because they don't want to be the tall poppy that gets cut down. We don't have that problem in America in quite the same way, but there are still is a hesitance that a lot of people have to really stand out, to stand up and tend to stand out. It's similar in nature. And in that way, like being the example that does stand up and does stand out is slaying a very major dragon of consensus-based thinking in our culture. Right. No, that's, that's true. If you just say the right things um, in a way that, I guess, in, in, in actually the right way, the right Christian faithful way, um, but that makes other people mad and you get long housed, I, you know, that, 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 could, that does inspire more people to speak out in the right way. So um, I, do, I think earlier this week, there was a clip of Tucker Carlson circulating around where I don't know if you saw it or not, but he was talking mm -hmm. about why Trump was so impactful. And he was saying, it's because it's not because of his policies. His policies were they pushed back against the status quo, but they were essentially like 1990s 
center-left policies. Like Bill Clinton had probably a stronger immigration policy than, than Trump did. But it was his mm-hmm. words that really moved people um, to hate him in a lot of cases where the media outlets thought he was crazy because he just, again, like he's sometimes too much so, but he just called, called things as he saw them. And, um, you know, maybe he could have been more, more regulated, but that was what is powerful about Donald Trump is that he, you know, he, he says things that everybody thinks they, they should be saying, but feels that they can't. So I think hmm. more men like that would be a good step in the right direction. Yeah, that that was a big characteristic of him, wasn't it? Like it wasn't, it, it wasn't. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't the policies. It was more of his persona, his character, as being so stand up and so stand out without it being like a fist in the air kind of thing. Yeah, it just drove the longhouse. But define the. I know what the longhouse <laughs> is, but define the longhouse for listeners. It's a gr- it's a great term. Yeah, it's it's a useful term for sure. Uh, it's just the idea that um, our institutions are run by feminine norms. So. You know, you, you can't tell a joke in the break room that's going to be deemed offensive or racist or whatever because you're going to get hauled down to HR and you're going to be threatened uh, to lose your job. So it's just the idea that uh, men cannot function as men in a lot of our institutions, uh, whether it's academia, whether it's the business world, uh, whether it's government, because you're going to get, quote unquote, longhouse. You're going to get, you know, scolded in a back room about your tone or something like that. Um, so even uh, one of our recent articles about the pro-life movement is uh, Lizzie Marbach, who's a Christian who... Uh, got fired for from Ohio Rights of Life because of her tone. Mm-hmm. We actually obtained some uh, messages between her and her boss. Her, she's a female, of course, and her boss is a man. Um, and her her male boss was telling her to watch her tone on social media, even though the official policy at Ohio Rights of Life is, you know, people can express their religious views on on social media as, as much as they want. Um, but again, like he was, he was just kind of like offering this timid kind of like, hey, maybe you shouldn't say that, you know, abortion is murder. Maybe you should watch. I don't know if that's helpful. You know, I don't know if that's pragmatic. So it's it's that <laughs> idea of if you speak in a distinctly Christian way or a distinctly masculine way, even uh, just in general, you're going to get cracked down on because it's not that's deemed offensive or or insensitive or something like that. So the longhouse is essentially like another term for the gynocracy. Sure. Yeah. 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 And I think that, I think I don't know this is the exact reason, but the reason why they call it a longhouse is, is a longhouse is a collective living arrangements, like a long house that everyone kind of lives in together. And it's very, um, it's very collectivist, very communist, very feminist. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so standing up against the way, against the way that I would argue that in many cases, like it seems like America itself is within the long house and it sort of falls to, to men of all ages, but particularly young men to begin standing up against the long house and set that precedent now. Yeah, definitely. And you see even the bleed over between all the institutions, like there's so much transition between you know, it's, it's almost as if like, it's just one cohesive mass, like the media business, the big businesses, um, the federal government, it's like this giant organism that just destroys all dissent. So if somebody says the wrong mm. thing, the whole system mobilizes. It's not just, you know, the government passes a law against it. It's like social media will censor you um, in alignment with what the government's trying to do, which they could do, but can't because of the First Amendment. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it really is like this massive organism that, yeah, like young men can defeat it, but it takes courage and it takes boldness. So we, we've just got a few minutes left. Do you want to talk about your experiences being on the receiving end of that a little bit? Like, I don't know how much you can get into, but certainly you've been on the receiving end of of, of cancel culture in some pretty powerful ways. I don't know how much you can say, but I'd like to introduce sure. the possibility to discuss the topic. Yeah, I'll say what I can. Um, yeah, so I, I used to write for the Daily Wire um, and I was a business and economics reporter for them. I still do a lot of business and economics reporting at the Sentinel. Uh, but what left me to leave my job, so I was the one who resigned um, 
from mm. Daily Wire is I wrote an article about The Chosen um, that was, uh, they had basically had, um, there was a pride flag in one of their sets. Uh, yeah. So there's this promo video for the show and a lot of people were noticing this pride flag in the back of their uh, TV set, basically. Um, so I, I just wrote an article trying to cover the controversy and um, some higher ups at the Daily Wire just didn't really like that. Um, and they called me out publicly for it. So that just, I didn't, I didn't think that was, that was a good move on their part. So I left and it, honestly, I, I had had that job offer from the Sentinel for a few months and I was kind of considering it. I thought it was interesting, but that was, I guess, the final straw from my perspective of, of leaving and going to join an explicitly Christian institution, um, working with two other really solid, um, reformed Christian guys to build something new, um, that is not long housed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, so, um, can can you can you take me into the moment where you made that decision? Because you're you're obviously facing up against public shaming, which I think is never a good look anyway. And you're having to make this big shift that it will impact, you know, yourself, your future, your family. Like what was that, what was that moment like where you were just you had to sit down and, and make that call? Yeah, that's a good question. It it really happened pretty fast. So I think the sure. public call out came on a Wednesday, and by Friday I had my contract signed with the Sentinel. Um, oh wow. So it was a huge blessing to not have to go and find a new job, right? I had another offer sure. right on the table. Um, yeah, so that pre the previous summer, so summer of 2022, last year, um, I was having difficulty finding a job right away. Um, so Daily Wire thought I, they wouldn't be able to hire me right right off the bat. Um, so I was looking at some other conservative outlets and so forth. Um, and I was about to get married. So we, I got married at the end of last summer too. So uh, that was actually really, thank you. Yeah, um, that was a really sanctifying process as well. Um, just not, you know, facing that uncertainty and, and trusting God for a job to provide our daily bread, not just for myself, but for my soon to be wife. Um, so that confidence actually really held me up um, during, you know, a few months ago when all that happened all at once, where I, I basically, you know, felt like I had to leave my job. Um, and, you know, God was good to me. And I had this new confidence I'd never had before uh, that God would take care of us. So that was really cool. Mm, that is really cool. And, and I think I remember watching, I remember watching all that go down and uh, just from what I could perceive on Twitter. And I thought it was a remarkably courageous move, right. To, to, um, cause I, I think I saw the call out or something like that. And, and then, and then you were at the Sentinel and I, and I thought that was the, I thought that was the right move. And I had, I, you earned a lot of my respect and I'm sure that you're, I'm sure I'm not alone in that and making, and making that jump and saying like, no, I'm not going to, bow to this. I'm not just going to accept this and, and, and compromise on what I believe in to be true and what I frankly agreed with. And so I just want to take a moment to honor you for that decision. I think it was, um, is very noble and, and very good. And I think it's something that a lot of uh, men and women of all generations can learn from. Ah, oh, thanks, man. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just one more question on the back half of that. Like, has it, has it kind of surprised you to find, to, to, um, to find yourself in the position that you've landed in at this point? Like, I, I don't know if you know, Chase <laughs> Sovereign Bra, but like, a, yeah. you know, God has dropped a whole lot of influence on him as well. And so now you found yourself in a similar position. Like, has it surprised you or is it a little bit like, I, I kind of always knew I was going in this direction. That's a great question. So I, I went to college to study business and economics. So I didn't really intend okay. to be a reporter in the first place. It sort of happened uh. by accident. Um, so it's a longer story, but with COVID, I, I ended up working for a conservative media because I had no other options in terms of internships for that summer. And I just loved um, that space. And yeah, so this whole ride has been pretty unexpected. I thought since I was a little kid, I would be starting businesses. And I, I may do that in the future. Um, but I just, you know, I've really been enjoying, you know, talking about just generally issues that are important to our, the life of our nation and to the conservative movement, but especially 
uh, those that pertain to the Christian worldview. And, and now over the past few months, building a, a Christian institution. Um, again, not that every single one of our articles is going to be, you know, in your face Christianity, but all sure. of it's going to be undergirded by, you know, faithfulness to the Lord. So that's a really unique opportunity. I'm definitely thankful for it. Um, it's, it's rare that we get to work in places like that. And I've really enjoyed it. Praise God. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I know you've got a, you've got some family stuff to attend to, but I just wanted to say thank you for, for sharing so much of your, of your journey um, to arrive where you're at today. I've really appreciated getting to know the story, you know, behind, behind, behind the face on Twitter, behind the man, like I've really appreciated your generosity and all that. So thank you so much and, and praise God for your journey that's brought you here. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Great to be here. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Where would you like to send men to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah. So you can go to my personal Twitter, which is just at Ben Zeisloft. Um, no underscores, no spaces, anything like that. Um, and then uh, the Republic Sentinel. So republicsentinel.com uh, on Twitter, where uh, Repub Sentinel is our, is our handle. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, be sure to send uh, people there and have them, and have them uh, sign up, and especially for the upcoming documentary. Definitely. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.